Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. Mike, go. <laughs> Best way to start the show ever. <laughs> <laughs> All right. First up today is Elizabeth, and uh, her question is, what is the best way to introduce anarchism to somebody who is not an anarchist? Go ahead, Elizabeth. With a balaclava. <laughs> With a balaclava <laughs> and an ice pick. And pictures of Stalin tattooed <laughs> on your lower back. All right. And what, uh, I mean, what, what kind of anarchism, right? Because there's lots of different flavors. You have political anarchism, uh, marriage anarchism, like marriage without rulers. There is uh, metaphysical anarchism, which is no gods. There is parental anarchism, which is uh, right, so. Uh, political anarchism, primarily. Um, I found recently, as with many subjects, there are ways to go about introducing something ways to not uh, to go about introducing something and one yields much better results than the other. Um, and I also, I kind of want to discuss some of the common arguments that are used against it. People who are very pro government. Okay. Do you want to play somebody who's pro government and I'll sure. play somebody who's not hang on. Let me just get into character here. Which outrageous accent should I use? <laughs> That's going to offend some constituency. I'm going to go with Jamaican you know, Jamaican Scottish. Jamaican Scottish, I think I'm going to go with. Idy with porridge. All right. So uh, let, let's pretend that I'm a voluntarist and you are a statist, right? Right. And let's call you Elizabeth. Let's call me Steph. So I'd say, so Elizabeth, I have a question for you. Curious, curious, curious. How do you think your country is going? How do you think it's going the right direction, getting better, going the wrong direction, getting worse, staying about the same. How does it seem to you? I think it's staying the same primarily. I mean, the country has its ups and its downs, but with every period of history, it has its ups and its downs. I don't find it particularly worse in this generation than 20 years ago. Uh, wait, are we talking about America here? Yes. Okay. So uh, about 20 years ago, of course... The government was about, what, a quarter the size it is now. National debt was much lower. Uh, the dollar was worth more. We hadn't had five years of chronic unemployment. And uh, there weren't, you know, $200 trillion of unfunded liabilities kicking around. I'm not saying everything's getting worse, but in some ways, and according to some metrics, I think you could argue that it's not exactly staying the course. Like to me, staying the course would be, you know, there's a national debt, but it's not getting bigger. Uh, you know, just one indicator. And I'm, yeah, I'm curious what you think. This is just my thoughts on it, but I'm certainly open to the, the other side. Well, could it not be argued that we're taking measures to help prevent the debt from getting larger and decrease it? No, statistically, the, that's the not true. Cuts at the very least. Yeah, no, I mean, statistically, that's not true, or I guess not statistically exactly, but numerically. So what they're trying to do is slow the rate of growth. But nobody is saying that the national debt, like it's aimed, it's, it's I think, 17.5 trillion now. It's aiming to be like 25 trillion in 10 or 15 years. So they're aiming to slow the rate of growth, but they're not aiming to stabilize the debt. And certainly there's no proposals anywhere floating around the political system on reducing or eliminating it. I was certainly under the impression that all the government cuts were to start going the other direction, not to necessarily slow it down. You mean to start to reduce the debt? Yes. 
Right. Yeah, it's a tricky thing to do in the middle of a recession, right? right? I mean, if they fire a lot of government workers, then what happens? Well, the government workers that get fired, they generally go on unemployment insurance, right? Because there's not a lot of jobs out there at the moment. Right. So if they fire, they can say, well, we've cut payroll, but all that happens is they increase spending on unemployment insurance and other related services, right? Right. Is the amount that's paid in unemployment annually more or less than the amount they would be paid if they were employed? I don't know. I mean, honestly, that that's a pretty specific set of facts. But it's it's hard to cut uh, government spending, uh, it, it, particularly in the, like there was this goal, which was to stimulate the economy with all this money. And then to, the economy was going to get jump started. It was going to start to grow. And then with the growth of the economy, they would get increased tax revenues from, you know, more economic activity, more people employed and so on. That's not really happening. Right. I mean, so I mean, the the numbers are so, uh, so small. Right. So the equivalent would be right now, if somebody had a 17500 dollars in debt. And next year, their proposal was to cut their overspending by about $60, but still be overspending and still increasing their debt. You wouldn't say that they were heading in the right direction, right? Right. Another... And um, you, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say that another common argument that I myself, when I was very much a status, used was that the government controls the chaos that prevents, you know neighbors from turning on neighbors and people just going ahead and saying, I want that new computer and breaking your house and stealing it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, oh, yeah. So then I would say, if you made that argument, I would say, and is that true for you? In other words, if the government didn't threaten you with jail, would you really want to like rob me right now? No, but that doesn't stop the people who do it on a regular basis. It doesn't stop people who... um you know, they go out and they kill people, they steal from people, they rape people, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so your big concern is killing and stealing and raping. Yeah. Okay, and I agree, those are terrible, terrible things. Now, an argument that could be made, it's a volatile argument, but it's worth considering, is that if you're really interested in people not being killed, I'm not sure government is the first place to go to solve that, right? So governments were responsible in the 20th century alone for like a quarter of a billion, billion people, 250 million people being killed. Uh, American foreign policy has been estimated to have caused the deaths of millions of people uh, since the uh, Second World War. And things like the prohibition on drugs and so on. I'm not a big fan of using drugs, but I'm and even less of a fan of throwing people in jail for using drugs, you know, gets lots of people killed and 35,000 people killed in Mexico as a result of drug wars and so on. I mean, governments are 40 million people killed in the Second World War and uh, 70 million people through, killed through communism just in the Soviet Union. So lots of people get killed by governments. So it's not always obvious to me, at least, that, you know, hey, let's stop murder with government. Now, theft is even easier, right? Because theft is the taking of your property under the threat of force. And that, of course, is taxation. And even if we say, well, taxation is agreed to by people in general who are adults and so on, uh, there's two other kinds of theft that are not agreed to. One is inflation, which results from the government continually 
creating more and more money, which dissolves everybody's purchasing power, creates inflation. That's a theft. Uh, and it's a, in the same way that someone who counterfeits dollars is stealing from people. The government does it all the time. And that steals from the poorest and the old and people on fixed incomes, the worst and the most. It's horrible, horrible kind of theft. Like you can do something to protect your money from like a house robber. You know, you, you can bury it in your backyard. You can put, a, put it in a safe. You can put it in a bank. You can't protect your money very easily from inflation. Certainly if you don't have access to a lot of really weird investment vehicles, you can't really protect your money from that. And the third form of theft, of course, is the national debt, which is stealing from people who aren't even born yet. I mean, you, you know, my daughter is born hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt by the time she draws her first breath. I mean, that's her literal future that is is being stolen from her, has been stolen from her. And she had no say in the process whatsoever. She's just basically going to be this tax livestock that's there to pay off the debts of greedy earlier generations. Now, as far as rape goes, well, of course, there's lots of rape tragically in the military. There's, um, And, of course, the most common form of rape in America is the rape of male prisoners in government prisons, right? So I don't know really that as far as murder and theft and rape goes that you'd necessarily say that the agency that's arguably responsible for the most of those is really going to save us from that. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I had completely forgotten about what actually happens in the jail. Um, as far as government controlling things like murder, well, yes, it doesn't actually physically stop you. It provides an incentive not to do it. Um, and sexual assault too. Sexual assault is the highest crime no. rate in my state. No, so, sorry, I mean, but no, the, the incentive, no, no, no. The government doesn't provide an incentive not to murder. I mean, quite I, the contrary. No, no, quite the contrary. No, 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 seriously. I mean, like, okay. So for instance, a, a million America, a million Iraqis have died from that invasion, right? Right. Now, does the government, and I'm not saying a million Iraqis were directly killed by American forces, like, you know, some Marine there with the, but as a result of the invasion, about a million Iraqis have died. And it may be more, probably is, but that's a conservative estimate, right? Now, a million murders is, is really quite a lot. A million deaths is really quite a lot. Like that would be the equivalent of, I'm trying to think now, though, that would be equivalent of about 10 or 11 million Americans murdered, you know, p proportional to population. I think Iraqi is about 30 million, right? And so not only does the government, I mean, the government is providing incentives for these people to murder. So if you uh, are interested in the military, then they will give you a signing bonus. Well, that's a signing bonus so that you'll go and kill people. Let's not delude ourselves about what the, the purpose of the military is not to build schools. The purpose of the military is to blow people up and break things and smash things and all that kind of stuff. And so the government provides an enormous incentive to murder. I mean, it, it pays people to do that and it uh, gives you free college tuition and it, you know, it gives you free pensions. You get medals, uh, you get adulation, ticket tape parades if you've murdered a lot of people. And I'm not saying that all people in the military are murderers, but that's the point of it. And unless it's being used in a very specific self-defense scenario, right? I mean, you want to think of, think of something crazy, right? Just, just sort of to point out just how insane this is. Think about how high the bar was for George Zimmerman to prove self-defense, 
right? I mean, he was being threatened with decades in jail when there were witnesses to him getting his head beaten against the sidewalk. Yeah. Right? So that's the amazingly high standard for proving non-criminality for self-defense in America. I mean, were, were the Iraqis about to invade America? No. So there's massive incentives to kill, to murder, in, uh, the go- in all government systems. Uh, they, they pay you. They, they give you pensions. They reward you. They give you honors. They... So I don't know that there's this massive disincentive. I mean, I know for private citizens, of course, right? But Yeah, but I was more gov- thinking along the lines of private citizens. But this distinction is, is not real, right? It's not like this robot army of interstellar virtue bots that comprise the military. They're just pe- they are people, right? They're just p- private citizens who go to work in different costumes, right? Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Now, I'm not expecting this to like, you know, you know, now I'm <laughs> I've changed my whole mind completely. <laughs> no, no. Most uh, most Americans, most, most yeah, most Americans think that the government is terrible. Uh, so the approval rating of Congress is like five or six percent. And only 16 percent of Americans believe that the government governs according to the preference of the people. Yeah. Approval rate. In other words, so gotten as low Sorry, as the, the Great Depression. I mean, it's terrible. Yeah, it is. It is. Sorry, it is pretty terrible. And the fact that only 16% of people believe that the government is legitimate in America is truly astounding, right? So like 96% of people in the Crimea have voted to rejoin the Russians. And the government says, well, that's illegitimate because there's a couple of Russian troops on Crimean soil. Now, of course, the same government believes that it has perfect legitimacy with only 16% of people thinking it's legitimate in home soil. And of course, when it invaded Iraq, when America invaded Iraq, and there were elections held with a complete 100% occupation of Iraqi territory by American troops, they considered that a triumph of democracy. So I think that the arguments that I'm sort of trying to make is not to give you an answer. I mean, I think giving people answers is usually not super helpful. But to say, I think there's really good evidence that the society is heading in a very disastrous direction. So even the national debt that the government admits is over $120,000 for every employed American. $120,000 for every employed American. That's not possible to pay off. Not even close. By 2024, national debt rises from 17.5 trillion to nearly 25 trillion, or almost 175,000 for every employed American. Unfunded liabilities, like that's what the government has promised but can't pay. Unfunded liabilities are 205 trillion dollars. 653,000 dollars for every American, over 1.4 million dollars for every employed American. That cannot be a country heading in the right direction. And these numbers are getting worse, not better. And so I think that the argument from voluntarism or or anarchism or whatever 
first of all, there's no point looking for a solution if you don't even think there's a problem. Now, I think if you don't think that there's a problem, you don't have enough facts, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like if, if I'm blindfolded, uh, it, it almost never looks like we're going in the wrong direction, right? Because <laughs> I can't see, right? So if you get, I think, enough objective facts together, then you can see, well, look, there is a big problem with the society. Now, the solution to the problem cannot conceivably be more government, because there's already so much government, right? Right. You know, if, if I put 10,000 oranges into my living room and then people have trouble moving around and I say, well, let's put another 1,000 oranges in there, <laughs> <laughs> at some point yeah. someone's going to say, will you stop with the citrus? <laughs> I think we have enough citrus in here. I don't think more is really going to help, right? And the American government has spent the most money and is by far the biggest government in the history of the known universe. It has the most firepower. It has the most cash. It has the most debt. It has the most power. I mean, it can spy on anyone. It can turn people's webcams and microphones on even if their phones are in sleep mode, even if their phones are turned off, right? I mean, it, it's recorded entire, the entirety of an, of an entire nation's telephone conversations, it you, you like so let's take the war on poverty right since since 19 since the 1960s since lbj declared a war on poverty america has spent more money trying to solve the problem of poverty three times more money than it spent on all of the wars in its history and the problem so it's not like well a little bit more spending will help you know if they've run up into debt 1.4 million dollars for every employed American, 1.5 million ain't going to solve the problem, right? right? A little bit more money when there's already been such a fantastic amount of money and such a prodigious amount of government, military, and economic power leveled at various problems. Nobody, I think, can seriously say, a little more government. <laughs> well, then, then it becomes like some shifty brother-in-law. You know, we all know someone like this. He's like, hey, man, I just need... $3,500 to get my yeah, landscape Yeah, I swear I'm going to pay you back. You know? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to pay you right back, man. I just, you know, and then it turns out, oh, man, I had a couple of snags. I got a, I got a you know, some guy ran off with, with one of my hoes. <laughs> Let's just pretend he's talking about a garden implement. And, you know, I get to fix my car, man. So just 1500 bucks just, at the end of the month, I promise, right? And, and basically, eventually, you've lent him a quarter million dollars. And he's coming back after four years and saying, I just need $750 more. Right? I mean, it, it can't possibly be that more money and power is necessary. Mathematically, it has to be less money and power that's necessary, money and government power. So what if this has just been in an entirely wrong direction? You know, and there's good moral arguments, right? Taxation is is theft and government power is unjust. And we all know power corrupts, right? It's funny, you know, everyone reads this, this statement from Lord Acton, right? Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And, or, or another way of putting it, I saw in a cartoon is, I say, uh, those who do not learn from their history are condemned to repeat it. Those who learn from their history are condemned to watch those who don't learn from their history repeating it because it's not like historians have a lot of political power, right? Right. So when things have gone this disastrously wrong, 
even the most basic assumptions need to be examined and questioned. It can't be more government power. It has to be less government power. But less government power historically has always turned into more government power. So there is an argument to saying, well, what if we just completely open our brains, you know, to the sunlight of hopefully not sunburn of reason in the very skies above and say, well, what if the state, a truly ancient institution which we all understand arose out of tribal politics in the Stone Age, what if the state, like slavery, is just an unjust institution fundamentally and that's why it always turns to shit? That's why it always makes things worse in the long run. What if, like, the historical subjugation of various races and cultures in, in slavery, what, that was just wrong. It turned out to be, that was just wrong. Like, we couldn't reform the institution. We'd have to get rid of it. What yeah, if, and at the time it was unfathomable to even begin talking about getting rid of it. Yeah, in the mid-19th century, only 2% of the population had anything to do with the abolitionistic movement. Yeah. And so we look back and we say, well, how on earth could people have possibly imagined that there was anything okay with slavery? And yet we look around and we have this absolute catastrophe of a world system where governments are $100 trillion in debt, up from 60 or $70 trillion just six or seven years ago. That government's debt has gone up 40% in just a few years. And we've still got endless frictions with border conflicts and wars and, and you know, the, the bankers uh, running the, the show with the help of the government. And, like, they'll look back on us the way we look back on people who, are, who were pro-slavery and saying, how far up their ass did they have their heads that this even looked remotely sustainable or tenable could these people not do math of any kind <laughs> is that why they preferred credit cards so that nobody had to make change because that kind of math was just too hard so that's all you know the people who got how immoral slavery was i mean they worked for like 100 150 years to end it and maybe just maybe what we need is not reformed slavery or more slavery or less slavery but just no slavery. And this is the argument around, look, maybe we're just looking at this thing all wrong. Maybe it's not that we need to fix government any more than we needed to fix slavery or the subjugation of women. Like, it just has to stop. Yeah. Um, I kind of, about a year ago, I was very hardcore status, and I just kind of fell back into the arguments that I used against um, a friend of mine who is an anarchist. And there was a very specific process that he used to introduce the concept to me. And at the time when I tried, you know, I don't want to say an experiment, but I wanted to kind of, there, there's someone I know that's also, you know, very hardcore. He was kind of molded out of the, the international relations teacher at my school who's like um, unbelievably um, pro-status. And um, I realized that I probably went about the, the process very wrong. And so I kind of wanted to discuss, like, I'm sure there's not, you know, you do this, 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 and this in that order, and it'll be great. But I'm sure that there's certainly a better idea to go about it than what I probably did. Look, it's it's tough. You know, if I walk into a car dealership, what do they know about me? Well, nothing. No, they know I'm interested in a car, right? Well, yeah. Right? I'm coming now. I may not buy their car. I may not even buy any car. Mm -hmm. But I'm interested in the car, right? Mm hmm. 
nobody walks into the anarchist shop, right? Like, we got to go out and, you know, annoy people. And so that that's sort of a fundamental challenge. And that's why I sort of started with, do, do you even think there's a problem? Because if someone's like, well, there's no problem, society is great, then... Yeah, I mean, no you can point. try some stuff, but if they're all like, oh, you know, we, you know, we're going to deal with it. Don't be a doom monger or whatever, whatever you, you know, whatever you're going to say. Right. Yeah. Then keep moving. Like you, you, you cannot cure people who don't even think they're ill. Right. And I just have a question. Um, there's someone else that I know who's kind of in the same mindset, but the term that he used, like it took me a while to get around to understanding what exactly he's trying to say with this. But he said that he was a communist anarchist. And mm -hmm. I was I, I didn't think that, that was possible. Um, because communism is a form of government. And what he wanted to do was get rid of the government, but fall back into a everyone has an equal job in society kind of role. Um, I, is that possible to do? Oh, I mean, anything's possible to do if, if people want to do it, you know, and it's, it's within the laws of physics. So the, the anarcho-communist argument is something like this. Look, all property requires violence to defend. So I can go out and I can just say, oh, this hundred acres is mine. And anyone who comes onto it is trespassing and I'm going to shoot them. And that's an initiation of the use of force. How the hell does that hundred acres get to be yours? Mm -hmm. Right, so their argument is, well, let's not uh, let's not do that hundred. You know, everything is everyone's, right? It, it is a violation of the non-aggression principle to establish control over the means of production, in particular land and factories and whatever it is, right? So their argument is um, is valid. The problem is that their argument validates rape, right? And that's, you know, an argument that validates rape to me, you know, you should really worry about it, right? Because the ultimate means of production is the womb, right? Vagina, egg, womb, fallopian tubes, you name it, right? The whole kit and caboodle that you know a lot more about than I do. <laughs> that, that's the ultimate means of production because that produces human beings. Everything else just produces crops and crap and stuff like that, right? And so if nobody can privately own the means of production then no woman can own her own vagina, and neither can a man own his own sperm or his penis or anything like that. And therefore, any man who wants to have sex with a woman, if she can't use any violence to defend herself, because she can't own the means of production, they're, they're collective, they're shared, right? Everyone has a right to them. And that doesn't work, obviously. I mean, anybody who needs to have it explained why that doesn't work is someone you don't want to have a moral conversation with, but you probably just want to give them some pepper spray and head for the nearest exit, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there's no such thing as the means of production out there. There's property or there's no property. And if there is property, then you can't have my toothbrush, my left eyeball, or my right eyeball for that matter, uh, my kidneys, my arm, or anything like that. Right? And so if there's property, it begins with the body. And if there is property in the body, then there's property everywhere because you can't just have the body has property and the rest of shit doesn't. It's like, no, the body is just another piece of matter and material. It's a machine. It's a biological entity. It's a thing. And if we're going to have property in the body, which we need to, 
to oppose things like rape and murder, then we have to have property everywhere. You can't just say, well, people are property, but nothing else is. I mean, that's just ridiculous. This lizard here is an amphibian. All the other lizards are the opposite of amphibians. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah start again, right? <laughs> you're, yeah. you're not saying anything that makes any sense. So if an anarcho-communist is willing to say that, of course, rape is wrong, and of course you cannot have a woman's reproductive organs collectively owned, then he said, okay, well, then there's private property, private ownership of the means of production. Okay. But then we're, we're all tickety-boo, right? And then again, you can have, an, you can have, a, you can have your 100 acres too, right? So. All right. Well, it was really great talking to your staff. I learned a lot. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks, Elizabeth. All right. Up next is Alan. And Alan wrote in and said, I'm going to be a new father. And I grew up in a very toxic environment and struggle with ethical behavior, self-sabotage, and fear of failure. How do I keep from passing this on to my child? Go ahead, Alan. Hey, Steph. Hey, congratulations. Well, thank you so much. Um, I, uh, I've been listening to how you. Much long, sorry, how much longer do you have with the vestiges of human sleep before that all goes out the window? Uh, September 20th, allegedly. Um, oh, you know, if you get her to clench on for four more days, we can share a birthday. <laughs> hey, that would be excellent. Tell her in um, homage, in homage to <laughs> Steph Molyneux, clench, honey, clench. Come on. Uh, I'm I'm trying to ease her into only you. ninety six hours. Here's <laughs> <laughs> something that here's something that you on. Sweat it out, honey. It's for the good of the cause. Yes. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to ease her into uh, listening. To you, we're starting small with the uh, um, not trying to circumcise and uh, and also uh, the, the you know the, the discipline or the non-discipline, if you will, uh, type of thing. So I've gotten some books. She's a, a medical doctor, so research is a big thing for her. Uh, so at least we have that. Yeah, and I certainly will, you know, I mean, uh, I hope that she'll obviously do the research. But fundamentally, it's not to do with whether or not there's this or that plus or minus for circumcision. Yes, You know, yes. I mean, fundamentally, there's the do no harm thing, right? Correct. All physical organs can give you problems if they remain, but we don't give appendectomies to children, even though people die of appendicitis every year. We also don't remove the breasts of little girls because breast cancer occurs later on in life. Uh, it is... Um, uh, it, it, it's a fundamental. You, you simply do not remove healthy tissue uh, from babies, obviously, without their consent. But anyway, so good. Good for that. And uh, what was your background like, my friend? Uh, I am a uh, survivor of a uh, basically a fundamentalist Christian cult uh, um, by the name of Institute and in Basic Life Principles, um, or a uh, their homeschooling program was ATI. Um and their snag. I don't know what, uh, don't know what that means with ATI? Uh, Advanced Training Institute. Um, oh. And so basically it was a you know charismatic guy and was able to, uh, you know, loop. You know, I, I think the selling point was, was coming out of uh, a nihilist 60s. Uh, and uh, my parents uh, were just looking for somebody that had answers to how to raise a um, how to raise a perfect family that I basically claimed he had seven principles. And, uh, I mean, anybody that's 
it's it's just it's a complete cluster uh, of uh, beliefs and um, and that type of thing. So it, it was just pretty, uh, you know, they or what they call I'm trying to think of it a quiverful movement. It's kind of spawned from that very patriarchal. Um, instead of uh, he never recommended college uh, or uh, go into that, you just did apprenticeship and uh, could basically get free work out of people. But it's it, his. Uh, it was basically a multi-million dollar uh, ministry. Uh, All right, so so if you don't mind, no, you no, know, no, you're, giving me, you're giving me a lot of abstractions here. Yes, sir. No, no, I'm, and, I'm sorry. And, uh, you know, I don't mean to interrupt you with that, but it's all very no, woolly. And, and what, yes. what was it that was difficult or hugely problem, or problematic for you as an individual in this uh, organization as a kid? And then, I'm sorry for the background. I've no, no, fine. No. Um, well, basically, I, I think one of the member things, or one of the things I remember was uh, there's the the principle of that uh, is talked about in the Bible, where if you hate somebody, uh, then you've committed murder. If you've lusted after a woman, you have uh, basically committed adultery or yeah, whatever. And I remember sometimes I would, you know, and the other thing, my parents never talked about sex. Uh, there was one uh, conversation my dad had with me about sex, and he basically said, uh, this is really weird. He said, don't ever uh, marry a woman with large breasts because they'll have stretch marks, and don't masturbate because it hurts your performance. And that was basically my sex talk uh, when I was like 15. And Wait, don't masturbate because it affects your performance? Yes. <laughs> I, I, you know, I love this performance thing, you know, like like it's an opera of flying just bots, you know, <laughs> like, yes. I mean, in a park, what do you mean? Are you busking with this? I mean, performance anyway. All right. Uh, so this was his, that was wisdom to pass on through the ages. All yes. Right. That was, that Sorry was, about that. that was about all the sex talk I ever had. Um, right. but, and you were told to uh, hell and, uh, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that definitely was, I was, gr- I grew up in the South. So, uh, um, it was pretty, um, pretty hardcore um as i have grown out of that to more of a postmodern christianity to now more of a, a leaning agnostic atheist i'm still in that i mean i think i'm there because the switch has been turned uh it's still just uh i don't know anyway but but back to the point i i would be 13 and or 12 13 and and I wouldn't. I didn't have the concept that if a thought came into my head, that that's just a thought that came into my head. And I would even turn it to the extreme that I have, would have raped somebody because I looked at them and left lusted after them. But that you know, I didn't have any background to know anything different. And so those are the type of it just everything went to an ex, just a, an extreme in my head uh, growing up. As far as what you know, my mental state. Well, I mean, I would come out. A rapist, and I, you know, I'd never even, you know, done anything violent to a woman. It's just the way that that you follow that progression down. Um, you know, I was indoctrinated in this from the age of four till I was twenty. And did you go to what's the school in the uh, in the group? Well, they they uh, basically had what they called training centers, and I I had was went to those to do work or to learn different things. Uh, my parents, 
uh, ended up going to what the, their headquarters in Chicago, but that's neither here nor there. Um, so, and that's when my dad saw that the guy was not living or was not living like he was preaching and decided to get out of it. Um, we've talked about this. I've talked about it with my dad and it's now like he never even believed in it in the first place was, is his go-to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, what? like, what's this, uh, what's what, what? Yeah, exactly. We were in it for, for 16 years and, um, uh, we were in it for 16 years and he, my dad owned a grocery store and he worked in it 12 hours a day. And my mom was the one that taught it, but she never wanted to homeschool us. Uh, anyway, I think maybe I picked up on that too sometimes and could take advantage of that, but no, no, hang on, hang on. I know. <laughs> why, why, why did he say he never believes it? Um, he, uh, you know, 16 years is a, is a whole lot of time to not do something that you're doing. Well, and yeah, and then to go and to work for the, uh, uh, to go and work for the uh, other, for the work for the organization at its headquarters, it also kind of lends itself to saying you kind of believe or you're investing in this organization. But logically, to me, that makes sense. But he, he's, uh, and and really how all this has come up and kind of discovering you and uh, this guy's ended up being like a, he's sexually harassed over 40 women and molested Ooh, some dead? of them. I know it's. Oh, the, the leader of this. Yeah. The leader of the cult. And right. so that, that, that's really kind of setting me off and just kind of throwing everything away. And, uh, which is why it's kind of hard. I almost, I don't know if I can even, even if I wanted to now go back to some sort of religion, I don't think I could. Um, Cause it just, I mean, at first I thought he was just misguided, but since I found out this information about this leader, it, I mean, it's just really blown open my, uh, my faith and, and all, also any religion. So, um, but anyway. Well, I'm very sorry to hear about all of that. I mean, this level of indoctrination that you describe is extremely difficult and dangerous for children. It's very toxic for children. You know, there's, there's very little that children enjoy more than exercising their own abilities. I mean, my daughter has just succeeded in learning how to whistle. Uh, she's been working on it for months. Mm-hmm. You know, next up, the finger snap, although that's going to take a little while. But it's, uh, I mean, children love to exercise their own abilities. And thinking is uh, is one of the most important things that they learn how to exercise. And uh, if they don't get that opportunity, it's hugely tragic for them, right? And if it's actively opposed, I mean, that's astoundingly tragic, right? Right. So I'm, I mean, you were robbed. You were tragically, catastrophically, repeatedly, perpetually almost, at least for the first 16 years, robbed, right? Yeah. I mean, exactly. I had no concept of money. Um, I, I say I didn't. I, I worked for my dad for free at a store. I say that, but then I would... This gets into the ethics because there would be times where I would steal from the store because I wanted to get something, and I would steal cash, and I thought I had a way to you know, write it off or whatever, but I, 
I wasn't that smart. And he caught me. But And so, I mean, there's some of the things that, like, I look back on my childhood and just go, you know, man, I, st- I you know, I stole from my parents and, uh, but, and I would lie and manipulate, but I also would just lie and manipulate. No, no, come on. Things. No, uh, but, but you know that, you know, children steal because they're stolen from, right? I, I mean, the children yeah. don't steal because they're just acquisitive beings, you know? Okay. Uh, they steal because something very fundamental is being stolen from them. Their rationality, their integrity, their capacity to have a voice in a conversation. Their childhoods are being stolen, right? And they steal because, right? So the first time you've really cast a negative judgment in this whole story is on yourself. Right? The only crime that you've talked about, so to speak, is yours, right? Yeah, I, I, you're, I guess you're right. That's, uh, I'd never thought about children stealing uh, because they're being stolen from. But like you've, you've children are natural traitors. No, look, look at kids with a bunch of baseball cards, right? Or read mm-hmm. some of Jeff Tucker's uh, essays. There's a great essay by Jeffrey Tucker in um, uh, his, It's a Jetson's World which uh, you can actually find on my channel. And he talks about watching kids trade candy after Halloween, right? Right. They all get different. They're all trading back and forth, figure out which. My daughter has had a store in our living room for about eight months Mm. where she sells things and collects her money and all that kind of stuff. Uh, It's perfectly natural. You know, we are a trading uh, species. I mean, what is language really but the trading of ideas? The foundation of human communication is all trading, right? Right. And language is invented to trade. You don't need a lot of language to kill people and steal their stuff. Language is like the foundation of our entire interactions is, is trade. And it's so perfectly natural to us. And so the idea that children are some children are just bad and, and like to steal and all that, it's... Uh, yeah, as a guest in the chat room is pointing out, children even invent currency to keep things fair. Uh, children are, are natural traders and barterers and so on. Mm, yeah. And so if, if there's uh, stealing going on, it's because stealing is the template, right? Uh, yes. Win-lose. Stealing is win-lose. Trade is win-win. And sure. so when children are stealing, what they're saying is, I am trapped in a win-lose planet. I am trapped in the planet of predation, I am trapped in a fucked up win-lose environment. So when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Like it always strikes me as absurd and horrific that some of the most abusive parents around get angry at their children for moral infractions. I mean, it's just part of the abuse, right? Yeah. So I just wanted to point that out, this idea that you, this is the only thing that you've talked about as, as bad really well, so far yeah. well, is, is your actions of stealing. So it, it did, I, you know, basically from when 20, when I hit 21, I got $25,000 from my aunt and I blew through that all in one year. Uh, mostly cause I, I didn't feel like I ever had a concept of, you know, I was just suddenly like this gift was given to me and it was freedom. And, uh, so I don't know. It was a, but I've definitely learned uh, from that. And, um, 
But yeah, I, I um. Well, wait a sec. You said you blew through the money quickly, right? Yeah. How much money did your parents turn over to this group? Um. Well, my dad, you know, says that he they he didn't pay them. He he never wrote a check to them. Um, I know there were times that when I would go to a what they call a counseling seminar or whatever, that would require money spent. And, you know, he ended up going to, to Moscow, Russia with this group on a mission trip. Uh, and so, I mean, I know that there was a lot of money. There was money spent. I, I can't put a figure on it, mostly because he just, he says he never spent any money, gave any money to the group. But, uh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's just, it's, it's, uh, I hate I hate that I'm laughing about this, but it's. And why do you think you're laughing about it? I, uh, defense. Uh, it's it's a, just a defense mechanism. Um, no, I, I understand that, but that's. I mean, <laughs> why am I laughing yes, about it? Why? Why is it Either. this? Why is it manifesting itself in this way? Right? Why? Why do you think you're laughing about it? What happens if you don't? Uh, cry. And what's uh, wrong with that? Nothing. nothing you you want to ask that. about how to be a better dad? Yeah. Well, you don't want to be laughing about tragic stuff with your son or daughter, right? Correct. Because that will confuse the living shit out of them, right? Yes. Right, so, so having appropriately connected emotions is pretty key to being a dad, right? So this right. is why I'm asking, right? right? What happens if you don't laugh as you cry? What's wrong with crying? Listen, your kid is going to ask you about your childhood. And it starts yeah. pretty early. Hmm. And my daughter was like two and a half or three when she started asking me about what it was like for me as a boy. And you can't bullshit them. Yeah. But you, 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 you uh, I was born little old Fontenroy on the Martian planet of Betelgeuse, right? I was raised by some giant gas bag jellyfish style creatures, which had sexual organs on the end of their trailing tentacles. Never touch me with those. That would be inappropriate. <laughs> they taught me the language of squid, right? I mean, you can, right? You can't bullshit them. I mean, you can't traumatize them, right? She hit me like this, boom, boom, right? But yeah. you are going to get asked about this stuff. Mm -hmm. And if you laugh, it's going to be very disconcerting. And if you laugh, your son or your daughter will lose respect for you. Mm. If your children lose respect for you, you are in for a long, long haul as a parent. Right? Your children yeah. lose respect for you. It's like suddenly go about your life with a 250-pound anvil tied to your scrotum. Well, I guess you can get around. Not too comfortable. And, you know, you're always concerned <laughs> if the elevator stops suddenly and uh, escalators are a problem, right? Right. Parenting is, is great fun when there's mutual respect, but you need to do whatever you can to maintain the respect of your child, and that means to be direct and honest with your child. 
and to have emotions that are kind of in line with rational values, right? Now, what was right. done to you was an abomination, right? Right. And it's not ended, right? Oh, it's... Because uh, your dad is like, well, I never believed any of that shit, right? Right. <laughs> oh, fuck you. What do you mean you never believed? You put me all through... You put me through all of that? Right. For something you didn't even believe in? Yeah. Right? Right. You never gave them any money? Well, then it wasn't a... <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, right? So you're still being bullshitted, right? Yes. I I think it's a... It's a it's a process, and we're definitely in the in the conversation. He's not my dad is not somebody that is not gonna not converse with me and and talk through this stuff. So it's, well, no, it's no, something no, I no. do. You say that you're still in the conversation. Yeah, you're not in the conversation if you're being lied to. That's that's true. Right. That's like saying, "Well, I'm still in the transaction when someone pulls a gun and demands your wallet." Well, we're still negotiating. No, you're not. <laughs> Because one right. of you has a gun, right? Right. So, no, you're not in the conversation. Hmm. If you're being lied to. Has he apologized? He, he is, uh, he's apologized. Um, I don't think he apologized for the homeschooling, but he did apologize for, uh, you know, especially since this guy has turned out to be a fraud. Um, even by Christian standards, uh, this guy's turned out to be a fraud. Um, oh, but if he hadn't turned out to be a fraud, that would be okay then, right? No. So it's not, it's not your father's choice right. that it was bad or wrong to do this to you. It's because the guy just happened to be a fraud. Otherwise, it would have been great, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <sighs> Yeah, it's it's. Oh, it's not his. He, he he doesn't own the choices. It's just that this very cunning guy fooled him, right? Well, yeah, that's the. I remember I, I had posted something on my Facebook in relation to this article, and then I mentioned that I'd grown up in a cult, and my mom and my dad, uh, my my, my dad, and my mom, they called that night, and uh, we talked through it. Or, and um, and they said, you you know, you know, when you said that we grew up in a cult, there were a lot of educated and great and wonderful people that were a part of this, and and it, you know, at that point, I was mad at the guy that started it because I felt like that he did fool my parents and he did fool a whole generation of homeschooling uh, parents uh, and peddling this crap. Wait, so wait, weren't your parents? They were defending him then, right? Or defending the organization, defending, defending the, their choices, de defending the people that ended up joining this organization, which um, is them. Yes. yes. Yeah. See, your your phrase, "We talked things through," or "We talked through it." Yes. And I think what most other people mean by that phrase, not the same thing. Talking through it isn't. I was raised in a cult. No, there were lots of great, smart, wise, wonderful people in this group. That's not talking through it. That's you bringing up a huge complaint and your parents denying that complaint and defending their choices. That's not called talking through it. Mm -hmm. Talking through it is your parents saying, 
tell us more. Why did you post that? Help, help us understand. Tell us everything you think, everything you feel. And then for about 19 fucking days straight, no matter how many pots of coffee it takes, listening to, to you until they fully and completely grok, understand, and get your perspective. Hmm. You know, any idiot in the world can defend themselves and deny the legitimate sufferings of their victims, right? Right. That's easy. That's easy. That's asshole automatic pilot. Right? If you've harmed someone, you sit them down and you say, tell me everything that this has done to you. Tell me everything that is problematic that this has caused you. I need to understand what this has done to you. You don't defend, you don't minimize, you don't avoid, you don't deflect. All right. So this is not talking through things. I, I see that. Right, and this is, this is what, I, like this is all related to how do I become a better father, right? I'm so looking forward to it. And what, cause I'm going to be a primary caregiver similar to, to you. And I mean, I'm just, I'm excited about this prospect of doing this and, and just letting them to be able to have the freedom to do whatever it is that they want. Say, you know, within. The, okay. This is great. I'm, I'm glad for your excitement, but you're, you're telling me where it doesn't hurt, right? Right. And that's, that's great, but let's focus on where the, the challenges are, right? Right. What are your parents' relationship going to be with your child? I am, uh, they were always very big about um, rules at other people's house, whatever other people's rules were. And mostly, like, if somebody's child had a rule, it would transfer from the parent. So, you know, if I don't want All right. to, sorry so to, sorry to think... interrupt you. <laughs> sorry well, to interrupt you. Okay, what are your parents, what is your parents' relationship going to be with your son or your daughter? Um, I hadn't, uh, I hadn't thought about that in, I was, you know, just assuming that they, I guess they could, they would, be grandparents, and we live about three hours, four hours away from them, so they're... Okay, and I'm not telling you what you should or shouldn't do. I right. don't know, right? Right. But if your parents did significant harm to you and are defending their actions and are minimizing or ignoring your suffering, right? then they are... I would argue, toxic to you, which is going to be destructive to your child. Yes. You can have whoever you want in your life if you're a single person, but when you get married, and particularly when you have children, you no longer have those choices, right? Right. As openly as if you're just harming yourself. Like... 
you can drink every night you get home from work if you want, but not if you're a parent, right? Right. So when you're going to have a kid, then you have to look, you know how you, you child-proof your house? Like, yeah. you probably don't need a lot of gates on the stairs and things stuck into electrical sockets to make sure kids don't put their fingers in there, and you, you don't need any of that stuff, right? But when you are going to have a kid, you've got to child-proof your house, right? Right. Well, <laughs> which means remove things from the house that are dangerous to children, right? Right. You understand what I'm saying, right? Yes. I, I am. That is sinking in. So I think you've got, you know, you've got till September 20th. I think you really got to sit down, in my opinion, really sit down and try and work these things out with your parents, right? So if you say, right. look, I was, raised, I was raised in a cult. Well, that is a huge and very serious thing to say to your parents, right? Right. And the fact that you didn't say it to your parents, but instead in social media, is important. And, the fa and you, that your parents reacted in the way that they reacted is important as well. Hmm. Does your wife believe that uh, you were raised in a cult? Yes, she considers it very strange. <laughs> uh, she's, uh, and you're laughing again. You've you got to stop that. Uh, no, seriously. Yes. I, I, can't, I can't talk to you if you're going to keep laughing about this stuff. Sorry. Like, I, I can't. I'd love to. I can't. Understand. Because it keeps throwing me off any kind of connection that I might have with you. Because the hand of your parents keeps coming between the light growing between you and I, right? Right. So I don't mean to be harsh, but I can't talk to you if you keep doing that. I understand. So I asked if your wife believes that you were raised in a cult... And you laughed and said, yes, she thinks it was very strange. Very strange does not mean a cult, right? Does she believe that you were raised in a cult? Yes. Okay. What does she think about having your parents around her child? We need to talk about that. Have you not talked about it? Has she not raised any concerns? No. Because I believe when we've thought about it, we've thought about it in our, if they were around, would they physically hurt or harm the child? Um, Dude, they're physically hurting and harming our conversation. The laughter is, is for them, right? It's to minimize your pain for the sake of placating your parents. They're already interfering in you and I's communication. Yes. To the point where it's getting me upset. And I'm just some stranger on the internet, right? Yes. So the idea that if they don't hit you, then no harm, no foul, is incorrect. You must prepare your heart for being a parent by making sure that there is nothing in your life that interferes with the free and open flow of your emotions to your child. Nothing. Mm. Now, 
that may, and that means to me connecting with your parents and figuring out what the hell happened and making sure that they listen to your issues. Right? Right. But anything that closes off your heart is wrong to have around you as a parent. That anything that sense. makes you feel the opposite of what you really feel, anything that makes you false to yourself, anything that makes you turn your legitimate history into a giggle-a-minute talking point is unfair to your child. Your child deserves your complete unfettered and open heart and deserves no less than that. And you don't even know the degree to which your parents are evading responsibility for your history. And so your parents will be around with all this unresolved stuff. And all of them, uh, all of their energies focusing on, like you let the cat out of the bag, you, they know you think you were raised in a cult. Now they're on high alert, right? Yes. So now they're going to be on the watch for any authentic expression of discontent or a problem from you. And what are they going to do? Move to block it. Right? Right. Which is a replication of your early childhood experience that you are fundamentally helpless to change. You cannot change your emotional reaction to your parents. It's hardwired. You can't change that any more than someone can say to you a clear sentence in English and you can't understand it. That's the language you speak. I, I can't say to you, I went to the sea yesterday, and you not understand that sentence, right? Correct. So with your parents, there is a language of repression and control and avoidance and erasure of you that you can't not speak when they're around. And when, you, when that language infects you and infests you, you are then unavailable to your son or your daughter. That's the last thing I want. Right. I get that, and I pre that's why I really appreciate you calling in about this. Now, I mean, I'll, I'll just tell you, this is just related to my own experience. It's not anything that you should or shouldn't do. But for me, like, my mom is not good at power. She's not good at handling power over people. Power turns her into a tyrant. And knowing how people handle power tells you fundamentally who they are. How, how do they handle power over people? Now, there's no greater power over human beings than there is parent over children, right? No, no greater power. And right. knowing how people handle power tells you everything you need to know about who they are. In my particular case, my mom cannot handle power. Uh, it, it is the vestige of any affection that I have for my mother that I don't see her. Because my presence turns my mom into a worse person. Because she will always have power over me because she's my mom. So I actually provoke her into worse behavior by being around her. Right, I am the drug she cannot be exposed to that makes her act very poorly, right? Right. Very poorly indeed. And knowing how your parents handled power over you is essential to understand 
you also need to figure out why your wife doesn't seem to see any of this, right? And, and we, you know, if your wife wants to call it another time, that's fine too. But there's something in your wife's history that has not helped you to overcome the laughter about the tragedies of your history. And there's something in your wife's history that does not lend her to be able to watch your back in these areas, to keep you safe, to keep you protected. Because you're telling me all sorts of nonsense, which, you know, you believe and seems legitimate to you. And that's because it seems legitimate to your wife, right? Yeah. And so there's something, obviously, in, in her family or her history that has short-circuited her capacity to protect you. And, therefore, to protect herself. Because anything which damages you is going to damage her, right? Yeah. So the conversations also to have with your wife, which is, well, my parents were terrible abusers. I told you I was raised in a cult. Why have we not talked about whether they're going to be part of my son's life or not? Hmm. That's definitely a, definitely a place to start. I think so. I think so. And... If your parents remain unrepentant, like truly repentant, not like, well, we're sorry if you were upset, but we were doing the best we like truly, truly repentant. And repent, true repentance is an act of receiving, not giving, right? So people think that they, they push out an apology and then it's done, right? Yes. It's not true. True repentance is when you openly examine and are curious about and receptive to the harm that you've caused others. And it will be months of conversations initiated on the part of your parents to ask you about your experience of your childhood and their parenting, where they continue to ask questions and continue to ask questions and do not defend against what they've done and do not minimize. It will be months of questions on the part of your parents seeking to examine the effects of their choices and their parenting on you that would give me comfort at least about your capacity to remain emotionally available to your child in the presence of your parents. And this doesn't mean if they're physically over, right? And people always say, well, but they're hours away or whatever, right? No, they're in your head, dude. Right. They're pulling the laugh lever, right? Right. And it can be a phone call. It can be reading a book with a character who reminds you of your dad. It can be watching a show about victims of religious cults. It can be hearing something on the news. Anything, anything can trigger this stuff if it's not processed, if it's not resolved, right? Right. So it doesn't matter how far away they are. I have not seen my mother in 13 years. I can still get triggered. It's not like everybody's mommy and daddy issues die with their mommies and daddies, right? Right. So they can, you know, well, we live three hours away. You can even live an entire state of life away, right? Not a different state, but a different state of life. Alive versus dead. They'll still visit. They'll still call. They'll still pop up in your dreams. They'll still pop up in your emotional reactions. They'll still always be there, right? We are haunted houses of history. Right. Nobody that we 
meat ever dies while we are alive, right? Wow. They're all in us. This is why it's so important to limit your exposure to toxins. Everybody we interact with inhabits us. They get hit by a bus tomorrow and they remain within us until we get hit by our bus, in which case we live on in the minds of other people, right? We are right. memes, not even people fundamentally. Right? There, there are many more copies of us in the world than there are us, right? That's kind of scary. but It's true, though. And you're about to make the most significant copy of all. Yes. And those first impressions are going to be very, very important. Yes. So that's, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, talk about things with your wife, talk about things with your parents. And I would certainly suggest uh, talking with a, uh, a therapist. I was to, I was, uh, to, I was yeah, going, to, to process some of this stuff. Sorry, go ahead. I was just, I was going to a therapist and, uh, and we, and I stopped going for no good reason, but I feel like that I'm, I'm going to pick that up. I'll probably make an appointment for next week. Um, there was no good reason for me to stop. We had just gotten pregnant and moving and all sorts of other things, but that doesn't, it's no excuse not to go. So, well, it's probably because you got pregnant, right? Yes. That's been a, that's been a big thing in trying to adapt and just, she hasn't. No, no. What I mean is you get pregnant and that's going to, right. Children bring parents back into your life, right? Right. You can kind of be a free-range child when you're in your early 20s, right? right? I don't know how old you are, but when you start to have kids, you know, uh, they're back, right? Right. Now they want to be around the grandkids and all that, right? So um, therapy and having kids with problematic parents, well, something's got to give, right? Right. So, yeah, I, I hope, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you will do all of that stuff, but those would be my... Uh, my thoughts, just whatever keeps you as open as possible and try and figure out with your wife why this stuff wasn't a, a, a topic. Uh, I would sort of like to, uh, I, I would feel more comfortable if you understood that because it's, you know, could, could happen again in the future where, where this stuff and, and, you know, if your parents uh, are around your uh, and around your son, then that's certainly going to happen again. You need someone to watch your back. So that would be my suggestion. She has asked if she could help. I think there have been times that I have not opened. She has asked about it and has shown empathy, and I believe there have been times that I have not chosen to interact with her and tell her fully about about it, other than make the laughs and the jokes and and. Um, and which is weird because there's a lot of areas we're really close and we seem to talk about, but this area, for, uh, even um, this area is just as a, it's, it's tough to, I, I don't know why I feel like I have to protect her. So I, I will. Well, no, it's, it's, it's quite simple. It's, you keep thinking of yourself as a unity. You're not. Right. You're a multiplicity. You're an ecosystem. Right? So right. your parents are afraid of you truly connecting with another person because that will come at their expense if they remain avoidant, right? Right. Does that make sense? Yes. 
true connection with other people is the ultimate counterfeit detection machine, right? Right. And for people passing bad bills, they don't want you to have that counterfeit detection machine. So anytime you try to really connect with your wife, your inner parents are going to move in to block that, right? Because hmm. you still think that you're like one person with one set of motivations. No. The people who profit from you not knowing true love will move to block you achieving and maintaining true love. Hmm. My brother said about my wife-to-be uh, when she was still my fiancé, my brother said, I said, well, you're not really spending that much time with her. And he said, well, why would I bother? You're just going to get divorced anyway. Wow. Well. <laughs> oh, here I criticize other people for laughing, but this is so long ago now that I have a little bit of time. I've had a little bit of time to process. I mean, but that is uh, completely understandable. Because if I had someone in my life who really loved me and who I really connected with and who was really perceptive, what would they say or what would she say about him? So it's a preemptive strike, right? Right. I, I do know that my wife, I think when we've ventured into these, not as... When we ventured into this, I, I do know she feels a little bit of animosity towards them. Good. So Good. I, I do know that, that that has taken place. Um, well, water that fence. Yeah. <laughs> it's important. Yeah. It's important. And, and, you know, of course you do as well, right? Right. Well, Steph, I, um, this is... This has been good, and I hope that maybe I can schedule another call and, and before uh, September twentieth. Uh, and um, and uh, I I found out about you when you got on the Joe Rogan show, and actually when I started, uh, it was around January when I when I heard the the podcast uh, from Joe Rogan, and that's when I really just started devouring your uh, stuff, and um, and then I. I, I've subscribed, and so I, I just I just want you to know I really appreciate the hate to use, but I mean you know the work that you're doing, and um, it's just it's been a uh, and I hate to use another cliche term, but almost a blessing. Um, this is it's been no, it's been I appreciate really that. Helpful. No, I really really appreciate that, and thank you so much for the trust and the vulnerability of calling in. I mean, it, it speaks volumes to your character and, uh, I, uh, I think it's magnificent what you're doing in, in preparing. I'm glad you've got some time and, uh, I really appreciate you taking, um, the feedback uh, and I hope, I hope it's helpful. I uh, thank you so much. And, uh, just, uh, just keep doing what you're doing. I'm looking forward to hearing, uh, you and Joe, whatever y'all talk about. <laughs> so, well, thanks very much. It'll be great. Um, Mike, can I just ask you to give me a minute or two? Um, yes, he's a little upset about something. I just want to check on what it's in. If you'd just like to <laughs> give some announcements. <laughs> and Phil, go! I'd appreciate that. Just give me like a minute or two. Thank not you. a problem, not a problem. 
Would this be the time for me to break out my tap dancing routine? Uh, stuff's going to actually be appearing at the Toronto Bitcoin Expo 2014. It's uh, April 11th through 13th at the Metro Toronto Convention Center in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Should be a good time. I know Andreas Antonopoulos is going to be there. I know Jeffrey Tucker is going to be there. I'm going to be there. Uh, stuff's obviously, obviously going to be there. We're trying to do... Um, stuff's going to give a speech. We're trying to do some roundtable stuff as well, so should be fun. And then stuff is also going to be appearing at the Next Web Europe conference. That is April 24th and 25th in Amsterdam, the Netherlands. That's going to be a really, really fun time. I'm talking with the organizers right now, uh, doing some media stuff for it, and uh, it's a pretty big conference. And we're actually going to be announcing sometime soon. Stuff is going to be appearing at a Las Vegas Bitcoin conference. We just agreed to that today. So we should be announcing that in the very, very near future. Yep. Oh, there you are. All right. Finish talking about me. (laughs) (laughs) Who is next? All right. Up next is David. And David wrote in and asked, how can a secular system of morality be objective? If it can be objective, how can a specific set of moral guidelines be proven more virtuous than others? Hmm. All right, we have about only about 90 seconds to deal with this because it's really a tricky, tricky question. No, it's not actually, it's not too bad. All right, was it David? Yes, David. Well, thank you. Uh, did you want to add anything to the question? I want to make sure we sort of really, really get it. Um, no, I think that's pretty much my question. Uh, it, it sort of relies in some ways on how, how uh, I don't know if I fully understand your views on morality. I've, I've watched a bunch of your videos, but uh, I haven't seen a video where you sum it up entirely, so... Perhaps, yeah. Well, my views on morality are that uh, if you're going to make a proposition for universally preferable behavior, morality is universally preferable behavior. Uh, In other words, it is not culturally dependent, right? So we generally don't say, but in this culture, murder and child molestation are okay, so we have zero moral problem with it. Uh, that usually is not uh, not the case, even within a country, uh, other cultures. Sharia law is not valid in Canada, and so on, right? So, so it's universally preferable behavior uh, is the way that I propose that morality be understood. And the reason that we needed a new phrase rather than morality is because morality is um, religious or statist yeah. in nature. Yeah. Right. So morality is a word that's owned by governments, i.e. force, and religion, i.e. superstition. Uh, force and superstition are the polar opposites of philosophy, so I didn't want to use the same word that had been co-opted by the opposite of philosophy to work in, in philosophy. So universally preferable behavior tends to be a little bit more clear for people. Now, when it comes to defining universally preferable behavior, well, I guess the first question that people say is, is there any such thing as universally preferable behavior? And I would say no. <laughs> there's no such thing as a principle, right? I mean, there's no such thing as the scientific method. There's no such thing as mathematics. But that doesn't mean that it's subjective or anything like that. It just, right, just they don't exist like a rock or an atom or anything like that. So... Uh, so no, that it doesn't exist. And then people say, well, why should I even accept universally preferable behavior as a standard? At, w- at which point, people don't understand that they are proposing 
universally preferable behavior. And what they're saying is, I shouldn't believe it until it's proven. Yes, that makes But sense. that is a standard of universally preferable behavior. In other words, the acceptance of an argument if it is rational and empirical or whatever, right? Or they're proposing skepticism as universally preferable behavior. Sorry, go ahead. I say my main issue with it is that I feel like in some cases, what is a universally preferable behavior is based on what uh, a preferable universe looks like to each individual and a preferable no. universe. No, 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 no. That's like saying that science is that which is preferable to each individual. But it's, but the, it's, but it's not. But science is not trying to make uh, attempt to say anything about, like, a, a, a rock is a rock. You can't argue that a rock is, is not a rock. But in, if something like, well, how, how good does an apple taste? You, you, you can't say that. But that. No, how good does an apple taste has something to do with science, right? In that apples are generally not poisonous to human beings, yeah, right? As opposed to arsenic, right? Different flavors of, of apples. And, and I sure. feel like that's similar but, to morality. Well, no, you see, but this is the universally part of it, right? I understand. Universally that. preferable right. behavior. If, if, it is, if it is subject to each, each person's preference, it cannot be in the realm of morality. Because morality is enforceable on, on others. We arrest people, we put them in jail. It is enforceable on others. I'm sorry? I'm, I'm, I'm sort of rejecting the idea that uh, morality is something that we can, that is objective and that we can use to, uh, to make objective uh, actions. No, you're not rejecting it. No, sorry. <laughs> to be precise, uh, I, I don't mean this in any negative way. You're not rejecting it. You're simply defining morality as something that is subjective and then saying, look, morality is subjective. But that's just your definition. That's not a proof, right? Uh, but the issue, the issue I have is that... Um, sorry, I'm trying to think here what I'm No, it's talking. fine, but you, you understand what I'm saying, right? Like if I say this lizard is a mammal, yeah. but look, it's cold-blooded like the others, therefore biology makes no sense. Well, I'm just defining this lizard as a mammal, even though it's... A reptile, right? I mean, if you, if you define morality as subjective, then of course universal morality cannot exist. I, I completely agree with you. The question is, is universally preferable behavior subjective? Now, universally preferable doesn't mean everyone prefers it. Like a bank robber prefers to steal and not get caught. Yeah. The bank owner prefers not to steal and to catch the bank robber. They both have opposite preferences, and they're probably pretty universal, right? But that is not universally preferable behavior, right? So a, a, a lion wants to eat the gazelle. The gazelle doesn't want to get eaten by the lion, right? But they're both trying to survive. Survival would be the universal, but the win-lose is specific to each species, right? Yes, that makes sense. Okay. So when it comes to universally preferable behavior, the question is, for some, oh, can, can we define behavior that can be universally preferred by everyone? Now, that doesn't mean, is it universally preferred? But can it be? So mathematics is a way of understanding the relationships between you know, numbers and functions and relations and all that kind of stuff. Now, it is universal in that two and two make four is the same in Philadelphia as in Kathmandu or Constantinople or whatever, right? Yeah. It's universal. It's preferred. In other words, if you want 
to know the correct relationship between numbers, you have to use mathematics. You can't use prayer. You can't read chicken entrails or randomly guess or anything or, or paint random symbols while blindfolded. It's universal. It's preferable. And it's behavior in that mathematics needs to be written out in some form. It needs to be communicated in some objective form. You can't say, like, there's no math test where you say, I'm thinking of the correct answer, and they give you an A, right? <laughs> it has to be uh, acted on, even if it's just written down. It has to be communicated in some objective manner, right? Now, the fact that mathematics can be universally preferable behavior doesn't mean that everyone likes math, right? Yes, that, that makes sense. So, so it's, it, it can it be universally preferable? Well, yeah, I think mathematics, scientific method, uh, the same sort of thing, right? So when it comes to morality, the question is, can we come up with behavior that can be universally preferable for everyone? Now, doesn't mean does everyone, of course, right? That doesn't matter. But can it be? That's the first hurdle that moral questions need to, to, to overcome. Now, when it comes to something like uh, murder, well, can everyone murder everyone at the same time? Can murder, the act of murder, be universally preferable behavior? No. Uh, no, why not? If everyone was murdering everyone, then everyone would be dead, but... No, no, that's, that's not why. <laughs> That's not why. Um, I mean, the world would just be chaos if everyone was murdering everyone. No, that's an argument from effect. That doesn't have anything to do with... That's saying, well, there would be negative consequences, right? But that's like saying this mathematical equation is bad because it might produce a nuclear bomb. Well, that doesn't mean it's bad, right? It's valid or it's invalid, right? So it can't be consequentialism, right? Why can't everyone... It's tricky, but when you see it, it's like, oh, of course, right? Why can't everyone murder everyone at the same time? Um, I, don't know if I, can, I don't know if I can figure out the answer. Well, murder has to be unwanted, right? Uh, yes, obviously. Right. So, otherwise it's euthanasia, or it's, you know, it's not exactly the same category, right? But uh, let, let's take something that's even easier, and we'll come back to murder in a sec. So theft. People can't all steal from each other at the same time because stealing is unwanted, right? So if, I say, if you say, listen, uh, can I borrow your car? And I say, yes, the keys are under a rock by my porch, right? And you go and find the keys and drive off with the car. That's not stealing, right? Yeah. Whereas if you just find the rock find the key, run off with the car, that is stealing, because I don't want you to do it. I haven't given permission, right? Yeah. So people can't all steal from each other at the same time, because that means that everybody would be taking everyone else's property with stealing as a universally preferable behavior. In other words, I want you to steal from me. I want you to have my property. I want you to take my property, because stealing is universally preferable behavior, right? Yes. But if I want you to take my property, it's not theft. I agree. So stealing cannot be universally preferable behavior because the moment it becomes universally preferable, it ceases to exist as a category. It self-detonates. Because if everybody wants everyone to steal from them, there's no such thing as stealing. 
Yeah, that makes sense. It seems like that that system might be harder to apply to more complex moral questions, though. Wait, 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 wait. Come on. We've just had a huge breakthrough here. Let's not immediately leap through <laughs> to abortion and whatever, right? Euthanasia and all that sort of stuff, yeah. right? Okay. So murder, in the same way, murder cannot be universally preferable because then everybody would want to both kill and be killed, which means it wouldn't be murder. Yes. Right? It's the same thing with rape. Yeah. Right? If I, quote, want you to rape me, right, it's not rape. It may be rough play. Uh, it may be kinky as all hell. There may be various fantasies involving a Samuel L. Jackson mask. I don't know. But it's not rape, right? Yep. If you sign a consent form ahead of time, right, it can't be rape. Yep. Just making a note here. Can't wait to hear from Samuel L. Jackson's lawyers. Anyway, okay, so um, so rape and, and murder and theft, same thing with assault, right? If I voluntarily get into a boxing ring, can I charge the other guy with assault? No. No. Of course not. I'm there voluntarily, right? And so assault is only if you're not there voluntarily, you don't want it, you don't accept it as part of the risk of doing whatever you're doing, right? Yeah. So rape, theft, murder, and assault cannot be universally preferable behavior because the moment they become universally preferable, they cease to exist as undesired actions and therefore they cease to exist as moral categories. So theft cannot be universally, stealing cannot be universally preferable behavior, but respecting other people's property can be, right? Everyone can simultaneously respect everyone else's property, right? Yes. But they can't steal. From, stealing cannot be universally preferable behavior, but respect for property rights can be, right? Yes. And in the same way, rape, everybody cannot rape. Everybody cannot murder. Everyone cannot assault. Everyone cannot steal. It is possible to achieve it as universally preferable behavior, and the opposite of those moral rules is not achievable. Makes sense. So now, we've murder, rape, theft, assault. These are the major moral categories that all moral systems uphold, for the most part. And, and so, you know, we've done a huge thing here. We've said that only the respect for property rights and uh, personhood and life and uh, self-ownership, these are morally preferable universally morally, morally preferable or universally preferable behaviors. And this doesn't mean that people won't violate these rules all the time. There's lots of people who come to conclusions, pretend to come to conclusions about the world who don't use the scientific method. They're just incorrect, right? And I would argue that the, pe the number of people who violate moral rules is very small and they're almost completely harmless relative to the number of people who mistakenly apply incorrect moral rules, right? Yes. Right, so the fact that people think that taxation is justified and war is heroic uh, and so on and, and drugs, drug users must be put in prison, I mean, these people are really dangerous. I, I've never been mugged, you know, but I get mugged every day by the government. Right? I don't care that much about muggers. I, I do care about people who think their false moral theories are correct. Okay, so did you want a more challenging um, moral question? Sure. Uh, perhaps euthanasia? Euthanasia is, um, I think, fairly clearly, uh, the destruction of one's property is a moral prerogative, right? 
I mean, I, I can, I can drop a brick on my own iPad, right? Yeah. I can destroy my own property. And the first property that I own, and the only property I can't unown, <laughs> I can give away my iPad. I can't give away my body, right? While I'm alive. So the only property I cannot disown is my own body. Therefore, it is my most foundational and fundamental self-ownership. If we have the right to destroy our own property, then we have the right to destroy ourselves, of course. It's our own property. I, I would agree with that, yes. Um, I'm sorry, I'm, re I'm really tired and nervous right now, so I'm having trouble kind of voicing my concern, but... I, I just have trouble, like, I, I understand, I guess the the universal, perhaps the universally preferable behavior, the way you state it like that makes it make more sense, rather than, like, um, morally implying that it is it is necessarily the correct action, instead it's just the the most preferable action that could be taken for others, and perhaps yourself as well. Hmm? I don't think I said anything about that. If you want to bring something else into the topic, that's fine. But I haven't said anything about actions preferable to others. I thought that was the what you meant by universally preferable behavior. When you take a, when you take an action that is uh, universally preferable behavior, it is generally better for others. No, is that not why it's universally? Oh no, oh no, no. I don't believe that's to, that's true at all. I mean, I I, I assume that almost all moral revolutions or, or evolutions are considered to be evil, unpleasant, and horrible to others. Right? So, uh, you know, the idea that, you know, a moral progress, right? So yep. when the world fought very hard to end slavery, you know, there were lots of people who justified slaves and who owned slaves and so on, right? Yes. And those people found that moral advancement to be heinous, right? Because they were basically being told that they were evil, whereas before they assumed they were being virtuous, right? Uh, yes. Although slavery also is, is just bad. As you've said before, slavery is bad for society as well. Like it just, it doesn't work very well. No, no, I, I don't, I don't know what I, I mean, I can't remember, of course, everything I've said about slavery. I don't imagine, that's like saying that Wheat cakes are bad for elves because they don't have gluten processors or whatever, right? Um, there's no such thing as society, right? Slavery was good for a few people, and it was bad for others, right? Let me, let me give you another example, right? So if the libertarian argument against the welfare state holds sway and people begin to understand that the welfare state is, is violent in its nature and so on, right? And it's wrong. Well, there's going to be a diminishment and eventual curtailing the ending of the welfare state, right? Yes. How comfortable is that going to be for a lot of people who are uh, currently receiving benefits through the welfare state? Not very comfortable. Not very comfortable at all, right? Yes. So, and it's going to be a lot more uncomfortable for those people than it's going to be comfortable for other people, which is kind of why it holds sway at a democracy, right? Yeah, that, and but that that to me is is why something should be done. Hmm? If if more people agree with it, or it, it is better for the majority of people in society, that seems to me why something should should be done. For example, uh, right now a lot of people are benefiting from the welfare state, uh, or 
but less people than their people that are not benefiting from the welfare state, uh, which is why the welfare state is bad. Wait. So if more people are benefiting from something, then it should stay. But if, if more people are not benefiting from it, then it should not stay. Um, I don't think you, I don't necessarily think you can maybe have an ultimatum there, but like quality also plays a role in it. What do you mean by benefiting? Do you mean they just want it? Um, well, it could benefit them in, in a variety of ways. I, I'm sort of thinking, uh, like, uh, utilitarianism in a sense. Oh, no, I get that. I'm just trying to understand what you mean by it. So I would argue that people may benefit materially from stolen goods, but it's not really good for them in any fundamental moral sense, right? Well, the, what, what is bad about what's What is the thing that is bad for them about, about that? Oh, about receiving stolen goods? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's destructive to their self-esteem to be on the receiving end of stolen goods. So then I would, I would argue personally that that's what is, what is bad about stealing stolen goods. That's why I sometimes I'm confused about why you need to have this moral gap like, or, or just these conversations about morality when the consequences of— Oh, because—look, you know, they'll never—I mean, because people can't be persuaded in terms of their self-interest, right? Don't self-interest usually persuade people? You've heard of smoking, right? <laughs> but that's if people uh, look at. That's why you need to try and convince people what is the the long the long term interest because people don't realize that people sometimes are only interested in the short term gains and don't necessarily. No, but you seem. But, I'm sorry. You seem very confident that you can tell people what is their interest. What, what is in their long-term interest? What is to their benefit? What is... I, I don't know any of those things. Like, I don't know... It, maybe I, I honestly don't know whether somebody should smoke or not. So then, I, can you make a, a judgment on whether someone can smoke or not if you don't know whether someone can smoke or not? Well, no. I mean, there's, there's certainly is negative it consequences to smoke? smoking. There are negative consequences yeah. to smoking, but there are also very positive consequences to smoking. And the, the way and whether or not to smoke, the decision whether or not to smoke, I think, should be up to the individual weighing those consequences. As long as they accrue the consequences to themselves, then yes. Yeah, but, but there's no, in, in, at least in my opinion, I haven't been convinced that there's, there would be some moral uh, argument to say that smoking is objectively right or wrong. Correct. And for a, a lot of things, I, I think that is also the case. No, no, no. But smoking is not initiating force or fraud against others, right? That's true. Right. So, oh, the other thing too is that if you're a heavy smoker and you're a parent, then you could make arguments, right? That yeah. If you're if your expected lifespan is less than the maturation date of your children, then you're not doing the right thing. You've taken on a responsibility that you can't fulfill if you're going to act in such a, a an unhealthy and dangerous manner, and so on. So there's some oblique argument about that whether you know a, a heavy smoker. An old heavy smoker with very young children is, is really a very fit parent, but but no, I mean because it's that's self harm, right? Yeah. But but whether or but but you know I can say uh, no man should just go up and stab another guy. 
But what, because what, why right. should someone not stab another guy? Well, we already went through this, right? Because the initiation, because assault can't be universally preferable behavior. But I feel like the, the consequences of that is what is is what is the issue is what is the issue, not because the action is necessarily objectively wrong. And I think that's what I was trying to t say when I sort of I didn't think. that. Well, sorry, but no, this the language needs to be very clear, right? I think I, there's I, no I objective it. there's no objective right or wrongness that attaches itself to an action. I think a lot of you know, like how you know you have those those sharks that they have those remorse or whatever they are, those little clampy things that lampreys that stick under their jaws and so on, right? They, they attach themselves to those sharks, but there's no moral judgment or, or rightness or wrongness that attaches itself to an action, right? What I can say is that assault cannot be universally preferable behavior. Yeah. And, and I, therefore, any theory that justifies assault as universally preferable behavior is incorrect. When, when, you, when you put it as universally preferable rather than moral, and especially with the way some people view morality as, as an objective property of the universe uh that that's what i sort of uh i think you're you're, you're you definitely make sense there okay good well then that's sort of the way that i yeah yeah uh, I universally it. preferable makes sense to me the i was sort of rejecting the idea that some people have which uh, you clearly don't have that um there is an objective property of morality that exists in the universe Oh no, no, I don't. Yeah. Uh, that that's that's a deistic kind of thing. Yeah, uh, that's like saying you you pray to God for scientific answers, and therefore the knowledge of everything scientific exists in the mind of God as an objective property of the universe. And no, no, I mean it's 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 a human methodology yeah. for determining truth from falsehood. It doesn't exist independent of of the process. Like math, and yeah, like math. Yeah, that that makes a lot more sense then. Okay, good, good. So um, now. I use UPB, ethics, morality, and so on. Um, but uh, I think that, um, but, but so back to your sort of question, how can a secular system of morality be objective? Well, I think we've talked about that. If it can be objective, how can a specific set of moral guidelines be proven more virtuous than others? Well, I don't think you can prove them more virtuous. I think you can prove, like, because to me, morality is a subset of philosophy. And what that means is that there's, there's two standards of proof within philosophy. The first and, and major one is logical consistency, right? I mean, a proposition has to be logically consistent. Yeah. If it is not logically consistent, you stop right there, right? <laughs> stop right there. I got to know right now, right? You got to stop right there uh, and say, you know, go back and start again. I don't care what happens from here. If your theory is logically inconsistent, then... Uh, it no worky, right? And and that's the same thing in, in physics and biology, and right? Yeah. Like if I go to a physics conference and say, okay, for my for my, my, my 200-page biological thesis to work, a mammal has to be both a mammal and the opposite of a mammal at the same time. What are they going to say? Ah, uh, you're crazy. <laughs> yeah, they're going to say, look, I, I don't care what's on page 2, 3, 4, you know, 143 or 199. What's on page 1? is completely contradictory and therefore nothing good can come out of it, right? Yep. Yeah. First, if we assume that two is a unicorn and go from there, it's like, whoa, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> the two and unicorn thing is really troubling me, right? So I wouldn't say that we could say a specific set of moral guidelines could be proven more virtuous than others. But if somebody proposes universally preferable behavior that is logically inconsistent, 
right? Illogical, irrational, or whatever, right? Like, so if I say, okay, well, look, we have one group of human beings not in blue costumes who are not allowed to initiate force to transfer property. And that, that would be absolutely immoral. On the other hand, there's all these guys, they're not allowed to do it between the ages of 5 p.m. and 9 a.m. But at 9 or 9.01, when they put on this blue costume, then for those people and those people alone, it becomes universally preferable behavior to initiate the use of force to transfer property. And then at 5 o'clock, when they take that uniform off, or maybe even when they're on their break, it is now immoral, is evil for them, right? Yeah. So, so, so this would be it would make no sense at all, right? It literally is like saying, okay, it's a mammal until 2 a.m. in the morning. And then without changing any of its physical properties, it turns into a reptile. And then it turns into an amoeba. And then it turns into a unicorn. And then it goes back to being a mammal with no changes in its physical properties. Then people would say, well, you're just talking crazy. Like, (laughs) I don't even want to be near whatever shit you're smoking because that just makes no sense at all, right? So when you have ridiculously complex and opposing moral rules for various categories of human beings, even though you fully admit that they're all human beings, then your theory, it makes no sense, right? And so this is statism and, and this kind of stuff, right? Yeah. So it, it just theories that make no sense, you can just throw them out, right? So statism is just a moral theory that makes no sense because it creates opposing moral categories for the exact same entity, which is a human being. And sometimes even for exactly the same human being, depending on the time of day and the proximity of a particular costume. I mean, that's just insane, right? So that stuff just doesn't make any sense. So that's the first test. Now, the second test is, you know, empirical evidence, right? In other words, if uh, if somebody's, like, even if I don't understand mathematics, if somebody says, I have accounted for all variables in building this bridge and I have built it strong enough to withstand an earthquake, right? Let's say I don't understand anything about mathematics or engineering, and somebody says, man, I have just built the strongest bridge known to mankind. It can withstand a direct meteor strike, right? Yeah. And then a light breeze comes along and blows that thing down. Do I have to be good at math to know something's not right? (laughs) No, because the guy's made a claim, and the exact opposite has occurred, right? Yeah. So I don't know where he went wrong, But the empirical evidence is he went wrong. Yeah. And so when you have a system like communism or the mixed economy, sort of late stage capitalism or crony capitalism that's going on right now, or you have something like the war on drugs or the war on poverty or whatever, right? And they say, well, we're going to, you know, we're going to get rid of poverty in a generation. And then a generation later, poverty is worse. Or we're going to get rid of drugs. And a generation later, (laughs) drugs are more prevalent and more concentrated than ever before. Yep. Right? Or... You know, this is this is the war to end all wars, says the First World War. Woodrow Wilson, I think, said that about the First World War. And then, you know, 20 years later, it's followed by the Second World War, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, just to name the wars of American imperialism, Iraq War, Afghanistan War, Gulf War Part One, uh, Libya, Syria, uh, Chechnya, you name it, right? So I don't have, you don't have to know anything about philosophy to know that the claims made by the founders of these programs have been utterly rejected by empirical evidence. And then you can sort of work your way backwards. You know, if you have a mind when the guy's strongest bridge in the world falls over, when a wind comes by, if you want, you can go back and you'll find the error. There has to be an error, right? 
Um, but but you don't have to know anything about mathematics to say, as an engineer, you sucketh, right? I mean, you just you're just terrible at it, right? Yeah. And so even if people don't know anything about philosophy or the non-aggression principle or property rights, even just looking at things empirically, they can look at all this shit and say, oh my god, the public schools are terrible. The mail delivery sucks. The wars never end. The debt increases. Poverty is even worse. Drugs are more prevalent. Children are more frightened, less educated. Uh, and and the, the country's going to hell in a handbasket. I don't have to be a philosopher to know someone's making a big goddamn mistake somewhere. And, uh, you know, I think it's the job of the philosophers to sort of point out what's going on. But uh, so it's just the reason and evidence stuff. Are they logically more consistent? And does the evidence bear bear out the logical consistency? Something could be logically consistent and still wrong, right, if the premises are incorrect and all that. But that's, I think, where I would sort of bring... And that's where I think that this is a combination of rationalism and empiricism, right? So logic and evidence, which is what works so well in science. You can have a great hypothesis, you know, it can be consistent, but if it's not consistent with reality, then you've made a mistake, right? Yeah. And uh, so it's the same, like, I, I like the focus that you bring on utilitarianism. Like, what is the actual effect of what it is that we're doing, right? Yeah. Um, but the effect is only used to illuminate the theory, to, to validate or invalidate the theory. So that would be sort of my, in, in, in the same way that science, you do your testing to validate or invalidate the theory, right? Yeah. That makes sense. So does that, does that help at all? Yeah, that helped a lot. Thank you. You're very welcome. And thank you so much for great questions. Uh, and again, free book, University Preferable Behavior. Uh, you might want to have a grind through it. It certainly explains these things in a bit more detail. Okay, I'll take a look. Thank you. Thanks, man. Bye. Bye, David. All right. Up next is Greg. And Greg wrote in and said, what do you believe to be the origin of sexual fetishes? <laughs> Hello there. All right. All right. Go ahead. You're not out of wind from blowing anything up, do you? <laughs> no, not blowing things up. <laughs> it's a well-greased camel unicorn hybrid. It's the only thing that turns me on anymore. All right. Hmm. I haven't thought of that. Okay, well, yet. first of all, you have to define for me what a fetish is. Okay. Um, would you like specifically for me? Pictures. Pictures? Pictures, the occasional GIF, and 30 to 45 seconds. No, <laughs> uh, no tell me what, uh, what you mean by uh, a fetish, because that's a shifty term, to say the least, right? Yeah, I could agree. Um, I guess the uh, for me specifically... My definition of of it would be arousal the, uh, from images, things, or or even types of people. You know, it's, it could be a whole broad spectrum of things that I guess wouldn't be considered normal sexual attraction and arousal. Well, I think you just uh, kind of circled yourself there, right? Because <laughs> a fetish is sort of considered to be outside the norm, and then you said, well, it's yes. to being aroused by anything outside the norm. But the word fetish already has sort of in it outside the norm. Yes. And now you could say, well, okay, it's sexual arousal for non-procreative sex, but that includes blowjobs, right? And you you really couldn't argue <laughs> that blowjob is a fetish. Otherwise, aren't we all fetishists? <laughs> Um, so I think that it's, it, it's a tough, I don't know what, if anyone has in the chat window, any, anything more objective 
I mean, it's one of these things like, you know, it's like pornography, you know, it's tough to define it, but you know it when you see it. <laughs> I don't know what is, what is a, um, what is a fetish? Let me just, sorry, I've got another computer <laughs> chat room in it. Well, true, because no, it's I, important. Yeah, I've, I've never really come up, I guess, or really even thought, you know, I've, I've obviously looked up the, the word plenty of times, but. Well, and I, I would imagine that uh, of all the people on the internet, the people who are currently in the chat room at Free Domain Radio would pretty much be the experts. So, uh, I suppose I could do the same thing here. Yeah, you just go to uh, the good old wiki. <laughs> yeah, is there a wiki? I mean, definition of it that we can work with? Let's see. Sexual fetishism. Wikipedia. Oh, yeah. If you <laughs> want, do you, do you want me to unzips pants? Do you want so, me to kind of? He's he's <laughs> not going to be able to unless he's got really good voice dictation. He's not going to be able to help us with our definition <laughs> at the moment. Enjoy yourself. <laughs> do, my do, you, do you want me to read out here the the wiki sure. that I have here? Okay, sexual fetishism or erotic fetishism is the sexual sexual arousal a person receives from a physical object or form a specific situation. Or Sorry, did they say a physical situation. object? Is that right? The object or situation. Hmm? He said uh, sexual or, arousal or from, from a physical sorry, object? Sorry. From a physical object or from a specific situation. The object right. or situation of interest is called the fetish. The person who has a fetish for that object slash situation is a fetishist. That, that doesn't help me too much. <laughs> you know, object, mouth situation blowjob does that make me a <laughs> fetishist or anyone like well, that doesn't to be right i i've i've kind of thought of the same things before you know it's like um i guess anyone i guess what you or i've read before how could we consider then say breasts you know do, do we fan you know or since breasts is well, but, the, but there's is, good reasons but there's good oh, reasons yeah. for men well first of all most women have an extreme fetish for middle-aged man boobs. That's what I tell myself <laughs> pretty much every morning. So um, while doing a slow shake in front of the mirror, but um, uh, for men to have a, a preference for large breasts, well, I mean, obviously it, it indicates sexual maturity. Uh, and, and secondly, it indicates having a fairly ample food supply, right? Yes. So, I mean, just off the top of my head, so to speak. Um, plus, you know, it's hard to do, you know, mo motorboat uh, <laughs> in, in any other particular way. So that's not a fetish, I think. I mean, that's like saying that women have a no. fetish for uh, healthy males. It's like, no, that's right. No, I wouldn't consider it either. Let's just uh, see here. Mike, you've done a lot of extensive research in this uh in this topic <laughs> i thought we said we wouldn't we're going to discuss this on the show stuff but <laughs> <laughs> no what do you think fetish let's say let's get everyone involved it's tough to define it's very <laughs> tough to define do you i mean i i would be fairly comfortable discussing it um because i have talked to, about it with plenty of people before at least people that I'm close to, um, but specifically my own fetish. Oh yeah, okay. Let's go for that. As long as you're not the adult diaper guy from that was. A bit no. Before. No. Go for it. 
I, I don't know if this would be, I guess to me, I wouldn't consider it worse, but maybe some people would. But uh, my specific fetish, the name for it is vorerophilia, or short vor. Um, basically, that means that I, I can be aroused by either the thought of or even seeing um, uh, a person uh, being eaten alive. It, you know, there's many different facets of it, you know, whether it involves, you know, blood, you know, so on and so forth. And for me specifically, it's what's considered soft war, which doesn't involve any blood, you know, just involves being swallowed whole. <laughs> what, you being swallowed whole by a human being? And that's, well, that's where it diverges as well. It doesn't necessarily have to be a human being. For me, it's usually not. Uh, it's more like some fat like a shark or something, or or even that sometimes or a snake, you know, things like that. Right, right. Okay. <laughs> no, that's fine. Look, I appreciate you bringing this up, um, because I read something. Uh, let me just see if I can find it. Oh yeah, okay. Armin Muse. Have you heard of him at all? Armin Muse. I am not familiar with that name. Okay, well, this may be fat-worthy for you then. Let me just see if I can uh, get this up for you, so to speak. Yeah, okay, so uh, uh, Armin Muse. Wait, how do you spell I read the story, and I'm, I'm afraid I'm just going to share the horror with you. But anyway, okay. um, actually, no, it'll be a horror for you. But anyway, okay, <laughs> Mike, if you could just cue the 70s disco music. Armin Muse is a German man who achieved international notoriety for killing and eating a voluntary victim whom he had found via the Internet. After Muse and the victim jointly attempted to eat the victim's severed penis, Muse killed his victim and proceeded to eat a large amount of his flesh. Because of his acts, Muse is also known as the Rottenberg Cannibal or the Master Butcher. His main occupation was working as a computer repair technician. Looking for a willing volunteer, Muse posted an advertisement on the website The Cannibal Cafe. The site did have a disclaimer mentioning the distinction between reality and fantasy. So that's important. Yeah. Muse post stated that he was looking for a well-built 18 to 30-year-old to be slaughtered and then consumed. Berg, uh, sorry, Bernd Jürgen Armando Brandes, an engineer from Berlin, then answered the advertisement. Many other people responded to the advertisement but backed out. Muse did not attempt to force did not attempt to force them to do anything against their will. As is known from a videotape the two made when they met in Muse's home in the small town of Rottenburg, Muse amputated Brandy's penis and the two men attempted to eat the penis together before Brandis was killed. Brandis had insisted that Muse attempt to bite his penis off. This did not work, and ultimately Muse used a knife to remove Brandy's penis. Brandis apparently then tried to eat some of his own penis raw, but could not because it was too tough, and as he put it, chewy. Muse then fried the penis in a pan with salt, pepper, wine, and garlic. I hear the garlic's important. <laughs> he then fried it with some of Brandy's fat, but by then it was too burned to be consumed. He, he then chopped it up into chunks and fed it to his dog. Um... According to court officials who saw the video, which has not been made public, thank heavens, Brandis may already have been too weakened from the blood loss to eat any of his penis. Muse read a Star Trek book for three hours while Brandis lay bleeding in the bath. Muse gave him large quantities of alcohol and painkillers, 20 sleeping pills, and a bottle of schnapps, kissed him, and finally killed him in a room that he had built in his house for this purpose called the Slaughter Room. Um, after stabbing Brandis to death, 
In the throat, he hung the body on a meat hook and tore chunks of flesh from it. He tried to grind the bones to use his flour. The whole scene was recorded on the two-hour videotape. Muse ate the body over the next 10 months, storing body parts in his freezer under pizza boxes and consuming up to 44 pounds of the flesh. According to prosecutors, Muse committed the act for sexual enjoyment. Anyway, we won't necessarily go any further in that. Thank you. But uh, <laughs> this would be obviously a completely insane extrapolation of what it is that you're talking about. But this is in the general vicinity, right? Yeah. Well, that would be hard human for. <laughs> right. Right. I think vor, yeah. it really does sound like some outer space. <laughs> yeah. Of lunge, right? Right. Okay. So, and when did you first... Um, experience this uh, fetish. I think they're safe to call it a fetish. Okay, so... Do you... Because I have the thought that my first experience was actually when I was about four or five years old as a dream that I, and that I still remember quite vividly to this day. And what was the dream? Um, basically involved... In this instance, it was a human. It was a, a giant, fat human that was basically going around. I mean, he was doing other things, but the, the the main premise was it of you know eating people. I mean, just you know they were tiny to him; you could swallow them whole. Right. Right. And, okay. Uh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I just and recently I I was just really wondering about that dream specifically. The thought crossed my mind that even the giant perhaps was a representation of an adult, and that really kind of struck some kind of chord in me. Just, I guess, subconscious. I, I can't recall any you know, conscious memory of, any, of anything like that. Right. 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 Okay, and uh, I'm sure you know my next question, right? <laughs> Relationship to my parents? Or what yeah. happened exactly, or could have happened in my childhood. Right. Um, well, which specifically would you want answered? I guess I, I guess what, what specifically would you like me to answer? Or where would you like me to start? Well, um, what was your relationship with your mother like? I don't remember much before the age of four. I, and I don't, I don't really remember or have recall much interaction at, you know, at that time. Um, when I think about it, she was just, you know, kind of there. I, I remember at least being glad to have her around. She was, you know, she was the one that I would go to, you know, if she was on the couch, I would go up to her and, you know, and cuddle with her. So I, so I really enjoyed being close to her as that touch, you know. So I, I definitely think I at least, you know, I received that somatosensory, you know, pleasure or necessity. Right. Um, then as I, I got older too, I don't remember much of, um, or at least I always felt that my, my interests 
were taken into consideration, but there wasn't much curiosity. You know, there wasn't much, tell me more, you know, or you know, why, why is this really interest you? Which is why I always felt uncomfortable even just saying my thoughts. You know, why I never really came out to my mother about this stuff until I was... Which stuff? 19, about uh, Vor. I okay. have told her, and I've actually opened up everything. <laughs> Pandora's box, I guess. Which has been received actually quite well by her. And so <laughs> we've done a lot of talking within the past two years, ever since I did open up to her. Or actually, even more than that now, four years. Right. Was there more you wanted to say, or do you want me to ask? No, you can, you can go ahead and ask. Okay. How were you disciplined as a child? We were spanked. It... I asked her how, how often it happened between the ages of one to four. Uh, she said that it was, she said, she said she, she couldn't pin it down, but um, I, I would guess at least three times a month, more or less. Right. That, that's that's okay. my guess. After that, it, it wasn't very often, I would say, <laughs> relatively. <laughs> it shouldn't happen, but maybe... Uh, three times a year. Why haven't you mentioned your father? I know I've just been asking about your mom. Yeah, so yeah. What about your dad? Um, my father, is, he passed away when I was 17. Right. And we're um, talking about your childhood, right? Yeah. Majority of the spanking that I do remember was done by him. And in fact, there was an instance, and this is a big thing for me, because I actually believe it happened to me when it had, in fact, happened to my brother. My father, supposedly, this is after my brother bit him for reasons I don't know, my brother can't recall. I asked him about it. Um, my father um, lifted it up, lifted him up by his neck and slammed him up against the wall. And... Uh... Tell me a little bit more. How old were you? How old was your brother? At the time, he was, I believe he was seven. So that would, uh, that would make me five at that time. And your, your brother bit your father? Yes. Or it may have even, actually, he was probably younger than I. He was probably five or six. Uh, so you'd be three or four? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, because I actually, it, it's not really a memory. It's just a, like a, some kind of horrible manifestation in my mind, or it had always been that. And then your father did what? <laughs> my, my mother actually stopped him. Go, I mean, just made him release my brother, put him down, and threatened my father at that point. That if Wait, he, but your father, so your father lifted up your brother? Oh, yes. Yeah, and did what again? the wall. Right. And I'm, you know, assuming gave some kind of you know, angry, you know, I mean, just 
fierce shouting at my brother. I, I wouldn't remember any words, but... Okay, and then your mother threatened him? Well, she, she told him after that occurrence that if he ever did that again, she would leave. Right. She would take us and leave. Was your father violent in other ways? More so with language. Um, there were often times that I think, so, well, I know I wanted to help him, so I wanted to do things with him. But uh, if anything ever went wrong with uh, uh, what we were doing, if I made a mistake, you know, maybe we were, you know, out. You see, he did a lot of roof jobs, especially during the summer. And maybe if you know, I was trying to grab him, you know, the right tool, if I grabbed the wrong tool, bring it up to him. So I usually get the, uh, yeah, well, this is the, that's a fucking wrong tool. It's like, why do I even have you here? It's like, if you can't help me, just get the fuck away. That kind of stuff would happen. All right. Did your brother have, um, did he bite a lot? It's not a question I have asked him. I haven't asked my mother that either. Uh, yeah, I mean, five to not, six is yeah. pretty old to be biting, yeah, right? Yeah, to, to bite. Not that I recall. At least I mean, not biting me, and that's the only story I remember. Right. Right, okay. Uh, because, I mean, your fetish involves biting, right? Actually... <laughs> Um, not usually, at least. I, oh, just swallowing whole? Yes, yeah. Okay, okay. Um, there, there is one, one particular thing, too, um, that we just recently found out about this. Um, my mother, or well, both my parents, and my mother and my father left, my brother and I, um, with, uh, a couple to babysit us when we... When my brother was four and I was about two. And later on, that couple had been found with uh, child pornography. And their two sons had also been found with child pornography. And in fact, one of them had been arrested for molesting a two-year-old. So, okay, so your parents left you with a couple who were... Were years. they making child pornography with their own children, or years later they were found with child pornography, as were their then adult children? Yes, the the latter. Right. And what are your memories of the couple? I don't have any. How old were you at the time? Two. Somewhere between right. two and three. Right. And do you know how long you were... Uh, therefore, it was, um, if I recall correctly, what my mother had told me, um, about two days each month or so, I mean, between two or four days each month during the course of the summer. 
Right. Right. And you're, I guess, Imam obviously, obviously felt that there was nothing untoward about these people, right? Yes. And I had asked her, um, you know, if there, if I had, you know, if I had returned, you know, with any signs of, of abuse. And, and she said that none that she saw. I, and as I, I know this, this is the excuse that, um, you know, that she wasn't really privy to that information at the time, but. Well, I, I mean, you it would, would seem see, almost, yeah, you would yeah, see, it would seem almost certain that, yeah, I mean, so none that she saw is one of these non-answers, right? Yeah. Um, and it seems almost certain that this couple would have sexually molested their own children, right? I mean, they have child pornography and their adult children or the children when they're older are found with child pornography, so. And in fact, one of them did, was arrested or at least convicted of molesting a two-year-old. Right. So I wonder, too, if there was even that getting stuck at that age of abuse. It's kind of that sexual imprinting at that age. I, I Obviously, just kind of me. But there should be no sexual imprinting at that age of all. No. Of any no, kind, right? No. Right. 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 God, I mean, that's just what an unbelievably hellish situation and a hellish family, right? Yes. I mean, just there's no layer of hell deep enough for these kinds of people, though I do understand the tragedy, of course, of being exposed to sexual material and sexual abuse at such an early age, you know, warps sexuality in general, right? And um, do you, I just, do you think it's odd that that I would want a memory at least just to know? <laughs> no, I mean it would be you know the, the 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 beast that's under the bed is the problem. The one that you can see is less right. Mm -hmm. So if you were and for for how so you said twice to to two days a month, but for how long? For probably four months, I think. After that, we moved away and we moved to a different city, so we never saw them again. Right. So eight days in total, is that right? Yeah. Mm. So for eight days, you were basically in a house of rampant pedophiles. Yes. Unprotected. Yeah. At an age when you could not communicate anything they might have done to you. Yes. When the child later gets arrested for sexually molesting a two-year-old. Well. And the bad thing is I just, I, of course I, I can't prove anything. I, and I mean, neither can my mother. My brother doesn't really have any memory of it either. It's, when you say, I, it's all this vagueness. He doesn't really have any memory. I don't know what that means. Well, it's just, oh, sorry. <laughs> I tend to do that. I wonder why. Well, it's because I think there's not a lot of clarity in your family about this stuff, right? Not a lot of what? Clarity. Yes. But so when you say that your brother doesn't have any 
real memories or what does that mean? Um, when we recently talked about this, uh, he mentioned, all he mentioned as a memory was just playing with, with Legos over at their place. And it, it may not have even been their place. It was possibly a different time, different babysitter. Right. So I, maybe my saying really kind of comes from, or a real memory kind of comes from, I guess, my desire for wanting some kind of memory, some answer. Well, and I mean, this is the challenge is that if there is trauma, then memory is usually impaired, right? Yes. Right. Right. Yeah, so there's this great mystery in the origins, right? Yes. And that's... Well, I mean, I'll tell you my thoughts about it. And, you know, with without any, you know, if as seems most likely the traumatic events occurred in these situations and in this environment, then, you know, we're hypothesizing yes. without clear evidence, right? Mm -hmm. But what we do know is that your mom couldn't tell pedophiles from healthy people. And your mom married a violent man. Now, to her credit, she stood up for you guys and all that. But um, she's not very good at identifying and keeping you particularly safe from violent people, at least when you were young, right? Yes. So, I mean, logically, there's a couple of possibilities. So you went to these houses and you were molested. To me, that's the most likely you know, if I were if I were a betting man, that's where I would put my money. That's what I've thought. Yeah, I mean, and I'm incredibly sorry about that possibility or probability. And the, so, then, if that occurred, then you returned home traumatized. And if you returned home traumatized and your mother didn't notice anything, then you had no particular bond with your mother. Right? Yes, as stated with how I was describing our relationship at that age too. Yeah, I mean, you were talking about it like you could crawl up on her lap or whatever and she would cuddle, but that's very passive, right? Yes. On her part. Now... If your molestation as an infant included suckling on your penis, then the fact that you may have a fetish for being swallowed by giant people would not be unfathomable, right? Mm -hmm. And whether it was a man or a woman or one of the other children who would be suckling on your penis as a toddler, then that would be, because you have no comprehension of sexual function at that age, cannibalism would be 
is something that you would experience. There would be cannibalism co-joined with very primitive sexual arousal, right? And so whatever our first sexual arousal experience is, is one of the most deeply imprinting experiences that happen to us. And it can literally last a lifetime and it can be all-consuming for a lifetime. Whatever our first sexually arousing experience is, is highly, highly imprinting. And if it is co-joined with a, prim, a, a very primitive infant's experience, then it's not going to be primarily sexual in nature. In other words, there'll be some very primitive sexual arousal, but it will be without any understanding of sexuality. And that's why if your penis was suckled when you were a baby by these Monster. people who collected child pornography and, and pedophiles and whatever, right? Then sexuality combined with being eaten by a giant would, to me, it would fit, right? Yes. That was kind of the conclusion that I was coming to. As I had that thought that that the giant of was you know, relational to an adult. Yeah, I mean, the, the giant is the key, right? Yeah. I mean, As a kid, we are all giants. Yeah, we're yeah. all giants to to children. Yes. Like I'm five times the weight of my daughter or four times the weight of my daughter or whatever, right? It's, you know, she can still comfortably, I can carry her for like a mile on my hip, you know, or on my shoulders. I mean, I'm a giant. Absolutely. So that certainly is is one possibility. Now, the reason why I believe sexual, uh, first sexual experiences, and they don't have to be traumatic, I'm just sort of pointing this out, right? But so, I remember watching a film many, many years ago, which was about sexual fetish, and in it, there was a man who enjoyed being dressed up in a rubber suit and having a prostitute close off his airway like his breathing tube or something like that. Mm -hmm. And he would achieve intense sexual arousal from having somebody breathe out. And he said that his, you know, memories or his, I can't remember some girls he were playing with who would, you know, jump on top of him and would, uh, uh, close off his nose and his mouth. Right. I don't remember how old he was. I assumed he was fairly young, but you know, so he's basically got a young girl's, groin pressed against his and it's a sort of simulated sexual position if he's on his back and she's squatting over him holding his nose and his mouth so that would be his imprinting and therefore not not therefore like deterministically and inevitably but that's where he was he was sexually if that makes any sense actually as you were saying that i was thinking of um yeah somewhat common I guess it's if we want to consider it fetish, but like wrestling or the fascination with wrestling. Right. Which I, you know, as I come across, obviously having something or just this fetish as weird as I have, you come across other things too. So, 
Oh yeah, no, for sure. I mean, the the sexual landscape is uh, is complex to say the least of of the human species, and so in every in every society, there are different sexual practices. What is acceptable? What is not? What is sexy? What is not? You know, Hispanic culture is more butts. I think wasp culture is more boobs and different rituals, different standards of what is considered sexually appropriate or attractive or, or whatever, right? And it's, it's very complex. And it is the most important and elemental imprinting of all because it's the imprinting which tells you whether you get to reproduce, right? Right. Yes. Right, so there are some tribes where having a really long neck is considered sexually attractive. And so the women, I don't know from what particular age, but they put these golden hoops around their necks and stretch their necks out to the point they can't even hold up their necks without these golden hoops anymore. And all because a long neck is considered attractive. So they turn themselves into these freaky-ass giraffes just to be attractive, right? Yeah, I actually watched uh, one of the documentaries on that tribe. Right. So, And, of course, we all know about the foot-binding in sort of 18th and early to mid-19th century China, where uh, to be sexually attractive, the women would have their feet agonizingly bound to the point where their toes were curling into their heels and they couldn't even walk anymore, right? And so there are these fetishes. And if by fetish we mean sort of specific non-biological sexual attraction, like which doesn't lead to, to, to reproduction. Blowjobs kind of lead to reproduction in the thrift and foreplay and stuff like that or whatever, right? But now if you're in a tribe, like your genes don't know which tribe you're born into and what is considered to be sexy, right? And one of the amazing things that human beings can do is we can adapt immediately. Like normally adaptation takes, you know, hundreds or thousands of generations, right? Yeah. And yet, strangely enough, we can adapt in the moment. We can adapt to a peaceful environment. We can adapt to a violent environment. We can adapt to this particular sexual approach or that particular sexual approach. Now, of course, in the evolution of the species, sexuality was not nearly as, quote, private as as it is now, right? So you would see sexual activity in the tribe around you or you'd hear it or whatever it was, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And given that our genes did not know which tribe we were born into, the most efficient thing for the genes to do is to imprint upon this first sexual activity that is seen and then do that. Because that must be what is considered to be sexual or sexy, I guess, in the tribe, right? Yes. And to do that which is sexy gets you access to reproduction. Does this make any sense? Oh, absolutely. Now... It's the same reason why people imprint on the personality of their parents, particularly the same-sex parent, right? Because parents, by definition, have achieved sexual success. Right? So in a tribe of 100 people, you know, maybe there's 50 women, and maybe there are eight women of childbearing age who are unattached, right? Now, eight women all brought up in the same tribe, are they going to be very different? No. Are they going to be very different from your own mom? No. So learning what women are from your mom and being attractive to traits that your mom has makes perfect sense from a biological evolutionary standpoint, right? Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So the 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 women that you're going to date in a small tribe are pretty much going to be the same as your mom, at least in many ways, right? Culturally or whatever, right? And given that your mom has already achieved reproductive success, it is most advantage it is most advantageous for you genetically to find women attractive who are kind of like your mom because that is the mark of sexual success right and and i mean if your mom was yeah if your if your mom was a certain way and then you wanted to go a completely opposite direction you were very unlikely to find any woman like that like if your mom's religious and you're like well i don't really believe in religion and then you go to the other eight women who are available to you in the tribe and say i don't believe in the tribal gods i mean what are your odds of success very low right or certainly lowered right yes which is why people who are in like so it's why women who come from abusive dads end up with jerky men right because their dad was sexually successful because he had children. And if she's going to be sexually successful, she's going to have to be attracted to aggressive men, right? Mm-hmm. That's the way it works in a tribe, right? Now, this, if, if children don't have much exposure to sexuality, I mean, in the direct exposure in the way that, that you did, or could have, or most likely did, but who knows for sure, right? But let's just say did for the moment with the, all the caveats of not knowing for sure. But if, it's, if you really don't have direct sexual experience until you are at least a teenager, then you don't have that direct imprinting. You may see or you may hear or whatever, but you don't have the direct imprinting, right? Mm-hmm. But if you have direct sexual experiences when you're a toddler or a baby, then that's what you imprint on without any of the adult comprehension or understanding. And that's why it becomes metaphorical. It becomes being eaten rather than whatever, if there was uh, a fellatio on a, on a toddler or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. So to me, uh, a, a fetish is sexual imprinting that occurred at the wrong time and in the wrong way, which is another way of saying, you know, evil, molesty kind of crap, right? But it, it's, it's the result of our incredibly powerful drive to imprint on whatever occurs for us sexually and to retain that imprinting. Throughout most of human history, that served us very well from a reproductive standpoint. It doesn't really now as much. And if the imprinting goes awry, in other words, if the sexual experience is premature, to put it as nicely as humanly possible, if the imprinting is age inappropriate, then it doesn't mature into human beings and, and sexual reproduction because it remains at a metaphorical level of a giant is trying to eat me. But it is a very powerful aspect of our survivability and that which allows us to reproduce out of a limited gene pool and even more importantly, a limited personality pool within our tribe. Uh, And it also explains why guys with abusive moms are drawn to abusive women. Because if they reject abusive women and the mom is abusive, they're almost certain not to be able to reproduce with the women who are going to be like the mom in a limited tribal environment. So I don't know if this helps at all or or maybe you've thought of all this (laughs) stuff yourself before, but those are my thoughts on it. For, For the most part, 
I think these are all things that I have at least explored. These are with my own questions. These are asking myself, writing it down, of, of which I did today. And I kind of came to the question, is, which, which maybe you have you know, some, some insight for, is that is there, is there something that could be missing, say, before the age that that happened to me? It could, be, could there have been something missing that would have set me up? For, missing what do you mean well i i just maybe not having you know as as much of a bond or the you know the connection with my mother at the time if that would have made me more susceptible you know for my brain to oh adapt no to without that. a doubt listen without a doubt i mean you said you were two or so yes right so at two you could speak right and you could point yes right so whoever uh, if molestation occurred then whoever uh, molested you would have had to be sure that you wouldn't go straight home and tell your mom. So, like, you can only pray fundamentally, assuming it's not a baby, you can only fundamentally pray on children who don't have a secure bond with the mom, if this occurs, right? Yeah. Or the dad. And I talked about this in a show previously, so I won't go into this in any particularly yeah. great detail. I, I but, believe uh, I've heard it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the people who molest children are taking such astounding risks. I mean, it's terrifying. I mean, not only horribly evil people, but it's 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 the, the risks they're taking. They have to be really, really sure. They have to be very good at identifying the correct prey, right? Yeah. <laughs> prey. <laughs> Sorry. That's true. They are prey. I mean, they are prey. Why? Why is that? Well, just because that's that's terminology, you know, predator prey for. Oh yeah, yeah. You mean in terms of the eating thing? Right? Yes. Right, 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 right. And here's you know to to put it as mildly as possible, right? I mean, to to, to right. So you, you may have you, you may not have experienced molestation. You may have seen a picture of child sexual abuse with somebody giving fellatio to a child. And that may have seen, seemed to be eating, or you may have seen a video or one of been on in the background yeah. or whatever, right? Or maybe one of the children acted it out with each other or on you if they'd had exposure to this kind of child pornography or whatever, right? Very true. Right, so it may not have been directly on you, but nonetheless, it's still a powerful enough imprinting, right, that it could have this, this kind of result. Help me help me understand something though. Sure. So last point that I'll how 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 is this something you chat about with your mom? <sighs> I guess <sighs> I guess it was um <laughs> very difficult question. Yeah, it should be. <laughs> I hope it is. I mean, I really hope it is. If you're like, well, no, no, that's perfectly what an easy question that is. If you're like, oh, no. Right. So I'm trying to recall, you know, when I finally at least took the first steps, what was what was going through my mind? Why? Why did I want to do that? Maybe. 
maybe it was for myself to, to not only to test, I mean, not, not only to test, you know, what was the status of our relationship? What, you know, what capacity for love did she have for me at that time? If I was to be honest, if I was to actually open up, you know, to do something that I, that I hadn't done for so many years that I felt I couldn't do for so many years. Does well, that, and does that but make there's sense? Probably, right? hang on a sec, but, but, but talking about your sexual fetish with your mom, does this raise any alarm bells for you at all? I guess, um, I mean, it was something I was always afraid of, but not in the sense that, you know, I guess the, you know, I don't want to, so I'll never talk about sex with my mother. It's unimaginable. Not, not those kind of alarms, I guess. I, I Maybe I'm just talking complete nonsense. I didn't. Well, you know, I don't, I don't mean to sound overly square, you know, maybe, maybe I am being overly square, but I don't think so. I just, you know, mom, this is what gives me an erection. I just, I don't know. <laughs> maybe I'm just old fashioned. It just seems like, mom, I just don't feel we've been discussing my ejaculations enough. <laughs> I, guess I I never, and that was never, I guess, my intention. It's for me, I felt, I mean, this was a part of my being. I mean, it was something that was there, something fixed in my mind that at least I, I needed to you know, reveal the basics of it. And you see, not get into the specifics, but at least open up about, you know, this is something different for me. And I, maybe I, there was hope for some kind of insight, at least at that point. All right. So let's say, so you've been talking about this for two years with your mom off and on, right? Mm -hmm. And have you received insights? Only to the point of her, I guess, I, looking back, I never would have, I, I never would have known about those, the babysitters or the fact of that. Okay, but other and, than and, that, and, which and, is what, 10 minutes conversation, other than that, what have you got? <laughs> um... There was one conversation. Um, I guess we or I was talking or about um, her leaving me with them and the damage it could have done. And. 
and uh, she called back. I mean, said she had a, a customer she had to go to really, really quick. But she called back and she ended up apologizing for, for leaving us there in the first place, which, yeah, that's what I would expect. But I mean, I, I was very thankful to, to hear it. I mean, it was something that I wanted to hear. Yeah, Just but I mean, it doesn't particularly to, change. No, no, it doesn't. This effect, know. right? No. Yeah. And have you, do you have other friends you can talk to about this stuff? Yes. And specifically, I talk a lot about all this with, uh, with my boyfriend. Right. Yeah, I, I don't know about, uh, I don't know about talking about your sexual fetish with your mom. I, I think that's a friend lover conversation mm. and you know, there may be therapists who can, uh, help you. I mean, am I, am I assuming that you'd like to have a little less focus on this fetish or you'd like to have a little more sort of quote, normal sexual desire? Well, I already do. Um, I eat in, I guess, a moderate sense in the sense that, um, it, it's not necessary for me. I, I don't, I, you know, touching, just being with a person, you know, lying in bed with them, that is actually enough for me, you know, to be. But you, okay, well, let me just put it this way. I mean, so you didn't mention a boyfriend before, so you're gay, right? I assume gay, bi? You're gay? Bi. Bi, okay. But you're in a gay relationship at the moment, right? Yes. Okay. So you understand, like, being a gay guy who may have, boundary issues with his mother is a bit of a cliche, right? <laughs> I mean, this is not unheard of in the gay community to have boundary issues with, with mom, right? Yes. I don't, yeah, I, I, I gotta, I just tell you my opinion. I, I think that sexual preference talk is not for parents. Why is you know, it? I like it, this style with whipped cream and <laughs> cherry on top and a dinosaur toy. And it's just like, uh, no, I don't think I, like, I never, ever want to hear about this from my kids. Right. And, uh, so I think that it's funny, you know, because what has also struck me is that if these are inappropriate boundary issues with your mom, the ultimate loss of boundary is to be eaten by someone. Then, then you are in the person, right? Then there's no boundaries at all, right? Yeah, I can see that. Of appropriate or inappropriate things to talk about. So I would, I mean, I'm just telling you what I would do if I were in your shoes is that, first of all, I would, I mean, there are therapists who, who would specialize in this stuff and I think it's worth it. And I think you can ask your mom to help, help you fund it if, if she feels that's appropriate. I mean, if, some of her choices as a mom had something to do with this, you know, why not? It might be a reasonable thing to ask for, mm -hmm. but I think it's worth, I think it's worth uh, exploring. But the second thing, I just, I can't, I can't imagine in any universe that parents and kids can have 
happy chatty conversations about sexual fetishes. Like, I, again, I, I don't think I'm just square about that. Like, I just think that's not, you know, like you couldn't imagine doing that at work, I assume. And there are places where this conversations just wouldn't be appropriate. I think, I think with your mom, kind of be one of those places. So I, you know, maybe just talk about the weather for a bit. <laughs> I mean, I hate wow. to say it, you know, but, you know, or, or, you know, Chat what about something that's not to do with that which gives you orgasms with your mom? What, uh, I guess, um, so what, what reasons kind of come to your mind when you're thinking of that? Or is it just kind of a innate boundary feeling for you? Or what's, what's kind of going on in your mind? Well, you wouldn't right. show your mom a videotape of you having sex, right? No. And ask her to critique your <laughs> performance, right? No. Right. Well, why not? Well, because it's just not appropriate, right? I mean, maybe you'd review that with your boyfriend if you both wanted to get an sort of outside opinion <laughs> or at least a third-party view, right? <laughs> but... um I would, uh, yeah, I, I would, I, I would, I would rethink about, I would just, you know, re rethink that, you okay. know, I don't have, it's not a moral argument or anything like that, mm -hmm. but, um, I think that that's just something that is your, your sexual life is, pri is private with you and your partner of the time. I don't think it's for parental consumption. Mm. You know, it's, 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 it's just, it's one of these private things between you and your partner at the time. And, uh, I don't, I don't think it's something for, what? I'm just repeating myself. I just don't think it's something for parental consumption, if that makes any sense. No, it does. I, I guess just some of my thoughts were, because I wasn't with anyone at the time and all of this was just very abstract. You know, it was just fantasy, right? No, I look, I don't, and I'm sorry to interrupt. I, I don't have any, I think it's a good idea for you to ask your parents if there was anything that happened inappropriate when you were a kid. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I think, but I don't think she can, if she was the kind of person who could really help you with this, I don't think it would be an issue in the first place. True. Yeah. And I think that would be my concern that, that if you're going to someone who can't really help you, then you're actually postponing someone like talking to someone who could, who right? could. Yeah. So I guess that would be my, uh, my suggestion, no, then, then. but look, I mean, what, what a, what a brave thing to bring up. Right. <laughs> and, uh, I like, I appreciate you bringing it up. I mean, it's a, it's a challenging topic. I mean, I well, don't know how much your heart was in your throat and talking about it. And I hope that you, uh, you feel that I appreciate, I dealt with it with some, you know, reasonable level of, of sensitivity and a, oh, absolutely. a definite shortage of, you know, white wine Chianti jokes. So, um, well, I uh, absolutely appreciate the fact that you can even, I mean, that you even allow <laughs> discussion about such a thing. It's, uh, you know, the, the chat room lit up with, uh, <laughs> I, I could see that. I, 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 I was seeing it moving the whole time we were talking. So I was yeah, really look, I mean, paying attention. Sex is, sex is the whole reason we're here. You know, I mean, if people didn't get boners, there'd be a distinct excess of dead air in this podcast because there'd be no, no people to talk or listen, right? So I'm very interested in boners uh, because 
they are life, right? I mean, they are the whole reason we all we all climb out of that uh, staff of power, right? So um, I have no problem talking about sex at all. I think it's a fine fine topic, and uh, you know that is a a challenging topic to talk about. But yeah, I mean, I personally, I would just I would go with the assumption that that there was some uh, oral sexual act that you saw that uh, uh, or experienced that would give you some association with being eaten as, as sexual stimulus and, uh, recognize that it was incorrect imprinting, right? Nothing wrong with oral sex, but it's not about eating people whole. Although it may look like that from the perspective of two or three year old, yes. but yeah, it's, it's incorrect imprinting. And when you have incorrect imprinting, you just have to work at correcting it. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know what that is, right? Cause I'm not a therapist, but uh, there are people who do know, and if you talk to them, then it might give you a way of finding a way to um, correct the the incorrect imprinting that occurred as a potential result of what you experienced when you were very young, which I'm incredibly sorry about. I mean, it's uh, e- even if nothing was done to you, even if you only saw a picture, because of the power of imprinting with anything sexual, that was enough. That it's you know it's not the same as being raped, but it is definitely gonna. That's the wiring a tad, right? Yes. So that's my, uh, yeah, that's that's my thought. And again, I, I really appreciate you bringing this up. And, and how was the conversation for you? Oh, great. Okay, good. Good. All right. Well, look at that. At the three-hour mark. We're actually closing off the show. Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, everyone, for, for calling in. I believe we've traversed the widest variety of topics known to mankind. Uh, in, what do we do? Ethics, family, parenting... And uh, Jonah, <laughs> Jonah with a sperm whale, so to speak. But um, yeah, thanks, everyone. Mike, did you have anything that you wanted to add or any reminders of where we're going and what we're doing? I missed a bit uh, earlier. Well, I was just telling people earlier, you're going to be at the Toronto Bitcoin Expo on April 11th through 13th. That's in downtown Toronto. And the Next Web Europe Conference, that's April 24th and 25th in Amsterdam, the Netherlands. We did have a date for a Vancouver conference on the schedule, but that has been removed. Um, so everyone knows about that. But uh, yeah, Toronto Bitcoin Expo and the Next Web Conference in Europe. Looking forward to seeing people there. All right. And thanks, everyone, for a great call. Remember to donate to your favorite philosophy show that changes the world in the most productive, positive, and powerful ways. I hope that that means this one, fdrurl.com, fdrurl.com forward slash donate. Hugely and massively appreciated. I guess we will be unveiling the studio in a couple of weeks, which uh, I'm quite excited about. Uh, it actually is orbiting Demas, second moon of Mars. So as you can imagine, the production costs have been quite extensive. And we need a couple of more 20 bucks a month donations for jet fuel and, uh, <laughs> and air. Lots of air. I'm here that the show is going to need lots of oxygen. <laughs> Otherwise, I might have to stop talking in less than 12 hours. So fdrurl.com forward slash donate. Thanks, Mel, everyone. And we'll talk to you Sunday morning.